broken by the smoke alarm going off as whatever was in the oven is now fully smoking it on fire. And as Seb goes to check on it, Mia leaves the apartment. What What is in that oven? I, so what was in that oven? Happy you brought it up. I have never been able to figure <laughs> out what in God's name he was trying to cook. Because for the record, it doesn't look like it's burnt. It looks like it's- It doesn't look like it's burnt. It almost looks like, like a souffle or like a pot pie, but it's massive. It's like a <laughs> it's full huge. crock pie. It is what? big enough to feed multiple people. And there are two of them. And they're already eating dinner, so it must be like a dessert or something. I don't know what that was. It, I had the movie paused for a while, like on a screenshot of it, and I could not figure it out. Hello and welcome to Movie Struck, a podcast about movies and the people who watch them. I'm your host, Sophia Ricciardi, and I am joined by host of There's a Lot Going On podcast and maybe my only source of sports news consistently, uh, David Arroyo. David, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I, I you know, the the sports pod is a, uh, it's a challenging one, but we, uh, we like to have fun over there. So thanks for having yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. Happy to bring you on. We know we like to get different perspectives on this podcast and I don't think we've had a quote unquote sports guy yet. So this is really, we're rounding out, you know, our pool of uh, guests here. <laughs> well, it's funny because I am not, you say like sports guy, right? I'm not the traditional like sports mm-hmm. guy. I'm not like, I'm not like the hard in like like ooh rah rah we gotta like like let's hit each other and and let's score points and you know that kind of thing like mm-hmm. I'm much softer than most uh, quote unquote sports guys so <laughs> like a soft boy sports guy yeah and I think it's gonna be pretty evident by uh, my movie choice yeah but, speaking yeah. of you know on this podcast I really only ever start out with one question for a guest and that is why they chose what they chose for us to watch and discuss and that's why of course I only have one question for you now uh, why did we watch La La Land. So La La Land is, I don't know another way to put it other than unequivocally my favorite film ever. It's its my favorite movie that I've ever seen. It's like every time I watch it, I'm just like in a good mood. And it's one of those things where like I saw Damien Chazelle direct mm-hmm. Whiplash back in whatever year that was after like after he got all the Oscar nominations, I watched Whiplash and then La La Land was announced. I never got to see it in theaters because of like time constraints. And then the first time I watched it, I was like, how have I not seen this movie? I love this movie. This is the greatest movie I've ever seen in my life. And from that point forward, just I've been obsessed with that movie. And and like having lived in L.A., like it it, it was the first thing that romanticized L.A. to me. Mm-hmm. And then like living in L.A. and having been to a lot of those like locations they show, I, I just it just made me love the movie even more. So it, it's it's part sentimental, part just like great filmmaking. Yeah, it's it's really just really like a gorgeous movie. I remember seeing it in theaters and being amazed at like both the cinematography and the production design just working together so well. But uh, we'll talk about that more when we get to some examples along the way because we have to open up, of course, the film with a very uh, retro looking series of logos. Something they do really cool in this movie that I'm a huge geek for is uh, really making everything look more like it's from the 1950s and 60s, like kind of the era of that classic movie musical. And you see that first here in the logos and you'll see it throughout with a lot of the titles. We fade into a sunny LA day stuck on the highway, car horns. The freeway. Uh, it is bumper to They bumper. call it the freeway. freeway. Oh. <laughs> oh no, is my East Coast showing that too is. much? They, they call it the freeway and they will tell you that it's the freeway. Very important note. Uh, <laughs> car horns are honking bumper to bumper traffic and we go through a series of radios tuning uh, and as they tune we sort of pan through the standstill traffic in one of 
a series of very cool tracking shots they will do throughout the movie. Upbeat music from one car starts to take over and a young woman uh, begins singing the opening number of the movie, Another Day of Sun, which is an ensemble number that I absolutely love. It's so upbeat. The choreography of this scene is so cool. You get everyone jumping from car to car, dancing throughout traffic, and you get a really good sense of sort of the spirit of the movie right out the gate. It's a really good, strong opener. Fun fact about the opener. I don't know if you have read anything about this anywhere, but that opener includes uh, more than one. I think think there were three main people who choreographed the entire movie, and they're all in that opening number. So, yeah, that's that's like, I think that was part of the reason they did that opening number, not including any of the main characters, so they could set the stage for, like, what is this movie, but also allow the choreographers, like, their time to shine, essentially, because, I mean, like, the choreography throughout is, like, really, really good, and I think this opening scene, like, does a great job of setting the stage for what are we going to be getting out of this movie? And the thing I always tell mm-hmm. people about that opening scene, I have sat in Los Angeles traffic. It is not that glamorous. <laughs> like it, it romanticizes something so small about LA that literally everybody hates, yet you watch it and you're like, wow, I would love to sit in LA traffic. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's sort of the lawful good to the like James Corden, Camila Cabello's Cinderella flash mob. It's the antithesis yeah. of that. And so it does a really good job of romanticizing what I think otherwise would be the worst thing that could happen to you mid-commute. Although I'm sure it was hell for the people who lived in LA, like when they shut down the freeway <laughs> to film this. Like yeah. that had to have been hell for those people because they're like, now I have to go through like, I don't even know where they filmed that. I've been trying to figure that out every time I watch it. It looks like it might be like North <laughs> Hollywood or it could be the other end heading mm-hmm. to Santa Monica. I can't tell which it is. But it's like, it's one of those things where it's like you shut down the freeway to film this and i'm sure people hated it and then they saw the movie and like if you weren't affected by it you're like this is really cool but if you're affected about it you're like i hate this movie now (laughs) so that's why i was late on exactly that was the (laughs) yeah that happens to me sometimes in new york will like run into a film set and i'm like ah gotta turn around but at least then i'm on foot making making a left i can't imagine like driving up and being stuck behind production yeah it's it's nuts also, speaking of speaking, you mentioned the soundtrack too. This song opens the movie, yes. right? I so I own this is how much I like this movie. I own this soundtrack on vinyl, and it's like a go-to for me. Like if I'm having a bad day, I'll listen to this soundtrack. And it's one of those songs. Like the moment it comes on, you're in a better mood. I don't know what it is about it. It's just so upbeat, and I think that's like a theme throughout yeah. the movie. It's not just a good movie. It's not just a good musical. The songs are like really well written and really well performed considering one of these two people is like doesn't really have any music background and emma stone ryan gosling's in a band mm-hmm. i don't know if you knew that but he he has some sort of <laughs> musical background i guess so what 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 is his band what kind of band is I, he in? i don't Do you know? know i've only heard like half of a song <laughs> so i i just know he's in a band it's he's pretty good oh wow yeah that was kind of uh to that point i have a bit of a musical theater nerd and so part of me is kind of sad that the i mean ryan gosling and emma stone both do an incredible job they're both really great actors they have a lot of good chemistry putting them in any sort of romantic movie together is a pretty good recipe for a win but there are a few moments where i'm like i really wish they had someone who was more classically trained in emoting with their voice singing some of emma stone's songs Mm. in particular but again the movie is so good and they do such a good job in the soundtrack of putting together 
just the exact right tone in the music at the right moment that it sort of glosses over that uh, a lot of the times. But I think that's probably one of my, I have a few notes later on that's basically just, I sort of wish Emma Stone had a little bit more training and emoting with her voice, especially when you see these ensemble numbers and they're just so good. You get pulled into the musicality of it all immediately. You get a lot of the sense of the theater of it all, even though of course this is a movie first and a musical second. Well, and, and just on that point real quick, because I know we're mm-hmm. going to get into it later because I, I think I know some of the songs you're talking about. I give her a lot of credit because I don't pick up on a lot of use of like auto tune and stuff like that in the mm-hmm. same way. Like like when I watch the remake of Beauty and the Beast, like you can tell Emma Watson's using auto tune and it doesn't sound very yeah. good. So the fact Emma Stone went in there, likely didn't use a lot of auto tune and it still like is at least passable most of the time is a feat in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, a lot of creditors. She does a fantastic job in this movie. Um, there's just a few moments where I was like, God, you're so good. And you're so, so close to being outstanding. It's just that musicality holding you back. But uh, we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. Right now, the choreography of this first opening number comes to an end. Everyone dancing in their cars abruptly goes and gets back inside of them. Uh, and we sort of go over to our very retro title and then learn that the season is winter. A lot of the ways that they'll show the passage of time in this movie is with these pop-in um, titles of just the season, which is I think is a really cool way to sort of move us through the story without necessarily being like three weeks later every single time we do a little bit of a time jump. In a burgundy convertible stuck in traffic, we push in on Ryan Gosling, uh, who will later learn his name, Sebastian, aka Seb, rewinding a jazz piece over and over again on his radio. Uh, in the car in front of him is Emma Stone, aka Mia, uh, who is stuck in the very same traffic and is on phone uh, practicing her lines. They're both sort of going through their respective mediums, given a little rehearsal. Uh, as she's practicing, she sort of misses that traffic has started to move again. And Seb starts honking at her from behind before speeding up next to her and sort of, you know, yelling at someone who is sitting still and now moving traffic as any driver who's experienced road rage on any coast has <laughs> want to do before speeding off. <laughs> uh, we cut to... Uh, I kept writing her name as Emma instead of Mia in my notes. So if I swap those two, that's <laughs> that's on me. Uh, we cut to Mia in a coffee shop on the Warner Brothers lot. Uh, a famous actress, uh, unnamed, but she is dressed very poshly and uh, is offered free coffee. Walks have in. Have you ever have you ever put a an actress to like? Obviously, it's just somebody. But like, have you ever thought yourself like, who is this? Who 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 would this actress be? Who would this actress be in real life? Because she's she's very put together and almost corporate. So it's not like, it's not like a Miley Cyrus type, you know, this is not like your one-off entry act. Like she's gotta be someone who is a well-trained, well-respected, formal actress. And so trying to put a name to that, I'm like, maybe like an Angelina Jolie type maybe? I, I can't, I've never been able to place it because they're like literally giving her free mm-hmm. stuff. Like here is free stuff. And yeah. so like clearly you're somebody, but like she's young. So it can't be like a Meryl Streep or someone like that. It has to be somebody right. who's older. And I've never like been able to like put it together. Um, And I guess that's kind of the point. It's supposed to be just kind of like your generic, like, hey, it's a famous Mm -hmm. person. Yeah, it's not important who she is. It's more important to just see, like, the contrast of Emma Stone is, you know, grinding away at her day job inches from the stardom that she's sort of aspiring to walking on in. Mm -hmm. And we'll see that kind of throughout. I think they do a really good job of telling you the information, like, who you need to know in this movie and the vibe of the city that you need to get, more so than worrying about the specifics. Mm -hmm. Because I think in a worse written movie, we would know exactly who that actress is. And I, I'm really glad that they didn't go that direction because it helps us focus in on the two characters that sort of matter to the story. I'm going to keep hitting some fun facts here while we go through because I've done a, <laughs> yes, I've please. done a tour of the Warner Brothers lot. I've actually done two. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So that <laughs> where they film that that coffee shop, it is just like an empty building on the Warner Brothers lot. That building, if I'm not mistaken, I could be wrong. It could be a different building, but it's if I if I'm my facts are correct, it's the exact same building where if you've seen the movie Toy Soldiers, it's the toy shop in Toy Sh- Toy Soldiers. Ooh, that is a fun fact. So there we go. <laughs> Our listeners end up at the Warner Brothers lot and want to <laughs> confirm that for us. Pretty sure us an email about that because uh, I'm trying to remember back. I've toured the Warner Brothers lot I think exactly once, and it was way back in high school, but. uh you know, I'm not trying to place that mentally. Pulling out the mind map of the lot, you know, laying it down. Okay, where did I get lost? Yeah. <laughs> it's not Eventually, weird. I will have a correction for something they say in the movie that is incorrect. And they point this out on the tour. Like, she, Mia says something that is wrong. Mm, I think I know what it is, but we'll, we'll wait till we get to it. Uh, as, as Mia is daydreaming after this actress walks in, she gets a notification on her phone. Oh my gosh, she's almost late for her audition. Uh, as <laughs> she hurries to leave and as she's going, she bumps into a guy in the coffee shop who spills all of his coffee all over her shirt. So when we cut to her in the audition room, she's wearing a large blue puffer coat, um, despite being in LA and probably sweating profusely because man, that sun, it's, uh, it is there for another day and it is warm. Not, not in the winter though. In the winter, like. Like in the winter, it probably like hits like 60s and it's like rainy. So it can be like a little chilly, but oh, wow. I know, 60s. I know, I know. It's <laughs> it's like, it's one of those things where it's like, it sounds super pretentious and it kind of is pretentious, mm-hmm. but like I was there, like when it hit 60, I was like, wow, it's kind of chilly out. Like we, we got hoodie weather. <laughs> I guess it's all about like perspective, like what it's like day to day, you know, mm-hmm. if, it's, if it's 80 every day and then suddenly it's 60, I can see how it'd be a little... Tragic. tragic i'm sitting over here in my like high horse in the east coast like oh my gosh it was snowing in 30 like last week hey it was in the um, 60s here today so i mean w true true as Mia's giving her audition she seems to be doing a pretty good job uh but she's interrupted by an assistant and the casting director just tells her that she can she can go she's almost done uh and she walks through a hall of identically dressed redheads who all look almost exactly like emma stone but just a little bit off and takes her place in an elevator heading down next to you again. Two more identically dressed redheads. Luckily, she's got that blue puffer coat on to differentiate her from everyone else in the yeah, hallway. Right. Well, and the other thing, too, before we get too far away from that scene, mm-hmm. uh, you, you said, like, she's doing a pretty good job. I think that is a gross oversimplification of, like, what they're <laughs> trying to portray there. Like, she is killing it. Like, doing mm. such a good job and, like, really putting on, like, it's, it's weird because we're watching Emma Stone act in a movie and then act like she's acting as another like it's 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 a weird like i don't know what there's a lot of barriers there but basically like she's killing it and then gets interrupted and it's like that is just like normal i feel like in la Mm -hmm. it's just like this thing of she's super talented you can see she's super talented but they care far more about when's my lunch break? When's when am I going to get my coffee? Oh, look, my coffee's here. Yeah, come in. We're going to interrupt this incredible audition because we don't really care. And we're going to get like 20 more people and we're not going to pick this girl anyway. And it's like, it, it's just crazy. Just just the way they portray that. So like perfectly to mm-hmm. me. Yeah, they do a really good job. And she's a couple audition scenes in this movie and in showing that she is always giving it her all and she is doing a great job. Uh, but it always seems you get a little sense of like how little the casting directors in this case are giving her the attention that her performance really deserves. For lack of a better way to put it, the casting directors or at least the casting directors in this movie, they're kind of just dicks. Like I, 
it's like it's like really like like you can't just give her the time and then like eventually we get the one good casting director but i'm like like Mm -hmm. every other one kind of sucks and it all contributes to the little success that she has had so far in uh finding acting work in la uh back at her place which i love the production design of her apartment she shares it with uh three other girls but each room is its own separate color each one is extremely well lit and just placed exactly so that like complementary colors are next to each other oh I, I the production design in this movie is maybe one of my favorite things about it every single scene is just like visual candy yeah the color like you mentioned the colors like the colors pop like from this point forward the colors become so important in this movie and just like the way they use the colors to create a different personality just for these girls that like end up not really mattering throughout the rest of the movie. But like, I know everything I need to know about them just based on the colors they dress them in. Um, And they also mentioned that I was reading somewhere, once they decide they're going to go like the cinema scope angle and like do kind of the classic Mm -hmm. colors and whatnot, that's kind of how they decided. Like they started with the the color palettes for these girls first. And that's how they Mm -hmm. built from there of what was going to be like the color palette we use for this movie. Um, and it's just like, it, it's gorgeous. But the other thing I want to add, that apartment is, I, I don't know what you think, but I, my guess, that's like a five to $6,000 apartment they're living in. Oh yeah. That apartment is crazy expensive for Los Angeles. Like I can, I know there's four of them, but it's huge. It's huge. <laughs> there's so much room. There's so much natural light in there as well. Got window space, like crazy. I was it's it's like when you watch Friends and you're like, there's no way any of them could afford that apartment. It's the exact same effect, yeah. but for this movie. Like, we don't see enough of this apartment frequently enough that I think it takes away from anything. But yeah, as someone who was recently just apartment hunting for the last like month, it's I would kill for an apartment like that in my price range if I was a struggling actor. Yeah, they're, they're all struggling actors and living in the nicest yeah. apartment you can possibly find in Los Angeles. Ugh, most unrealistic part of La La Land. You heard it first. <laughs> real estate. The real estate. As she's uh, kind of take, getting ready or getting taking a shower, recovering for the day, all of her roommates bust in, very energetic, getting ready for a big Hollywood party. And they begin to try and convince her to tag along as we sort of jump into our second musical number of the movie. Uh, I also really love this one. The first three numbers in this movie are maybe my favorite three musical numbers in this movie. I mean, there's some great ones later on too, but they're they're the ones I listen to on repeat. I think I just love the ensemble cast. <laughs> I'd have to think about that. I I like I like so much of these songs that like yeah, like I love this song. Don't get me wrong. But yeah, I don't know. I'd have to think about that. I- I'll have an answer before we're done. What my favorite is. Yeah. I- something I like about this number, it's um, someone in the crowd is as they sort of move through the highs and lows of the song, you get to really follow how Mia goes through her evening. So, you know, the song starts to rise as her roommates are convincing her to come along with them. As it gets quieter for a moment, she reconsiders. And when it picks back up, that's when she's strutting out of the apartment in a blue dress that I absolutely love. All of the dresses in this movie are cut in the same way that all of the dresses in An American from Paris are cut, where it's a tight on top and loose on the bottom. And when someone dances in a dress cut like that, it just looks great you can see all of the movement flow i was so happy that they chose to go with that direction but this blue one is the one that always stands out because this is of course where we get the scene of them strutting down the street like skirts swash swishing swashing was not they're like swinging Uh, (laughs) 
noticed it when I watched it the other day, and I thought this was hilarious. If you look, they mm-hmm. all have like a lot to grab onto, except for the girl in the red dress. She, yes. hers are like, <laughs> it's cut. So she's holding a singular piece and swinging it in a circle. <laughs> and I think that's hilarious. She's giving it her all though. She's getting a lot of motion out of basically having nothing to, to switch. Yep. Uh, they dance their way down the street before driving off uh, through a bunch of kind of cross-fading neon signs and party clips to a, a classic Hollywood shindig at a big glass house where everyone, all the hopeful actors and wealthy guy who owns the house, I assume, are partying. It party up. in the hills. A pool. Yeah. <laughs> did you ever go to a party in the hills when you were in LA? Uh, no, I didn't. I didn't know people who <laughs> who did or like went to parties in the hills. I had a friend though who he was friend this was he went to he was in LA the year before I was he had a Mm -hmm. friend who was a music manager and would often Mm. throw these like Sunday brunch parties in the hills and that just sounds awesome that sounds so what a fun brunch option right (laughs) where are you going for brunch today (laughs) Uh, I'm just going to the hills you know nothing fancy Uh, Mia at this party starts out kind of into it and then begins to feel overwhelmed as the song progresses and at another quiet moment in the bathroom she kind of sings just to herself about being someone in the crowd the only thing that anyone really sees and as she leaves everyone's moving in slow motion I love the choreography of this everyone's kind of moving in slow motion and as the song picks up again everyone starts moving faster before a man eventually jumps into the pool and they start they do a shot in the pool where it's both underwater and and of the surface kind of panning around in a circle it's well while we're talking about things that are beautiful the coloring when she's in the bathroom yeah like that red and like the way they tell story through color and like her her clear her clear internal dilemma and conflict just by like the coloring of the bathroom it's like this is incredible this is gorgeous yeah it's beautiful and a kind of bouncing off of that as emma leaves the party and finds out that her car has been towed because of confusing parking laws which relatable <laughs> yeah uh, right <laughs> she starts walking down a, a city street and now everything is in these blue hues and it's very subdued and somber uh, and it's another, again, like a great switch of the color. The palette has completely changed, but it's still working towards showing like the emotion in that moment. And as these kind of subdued hues follow her down the street, uh, the sounds of a piano and a sudden red light framing her on either side uh, pulls her into a jazz club or restaurant that's decked out in Christmas gears, gear decorations. Words have escaped me today. <laughs> it's a place called Lipton's, just like the tea. Uh, and she sort of pulls herself inside and watches for a moment before we see who she's looking at uh, as it's it's just sort of her alone with the music. Uh, and we meet uh, Ryan Gosling's character. We sort of transition back to the guy in the convertible from over, Sebastian. Real quick before we keep going. So another, I'm going to keep hitting the fun facts. So in the movie, it's called Lipton's, I think. The real mm-hmm. location where that is filmed is called, so it's it's classic Hollywood trick. You know, they show you the outside. <laughs> the inside is actually the smokehouse, which is located directly across the street from the Warner Brothers lot. Um, <laughs> if I'm not mistaken, I read somewhere or someone told me that's like George Clooney's favorite place to eat if he's filming on the Warner Brothers lot. Wow. I ate there once. It is not nearly as glamorous <laughs> as the movie makes you think it is. But it like it, it it like is very old timey, and I I don't know how to describe it other than old timey. Like if someone told me they still allowed smoking in there, I would believe it. <laughs> yes, you definitely get the vibe that people are smoking it. There's a lot of like 
intimate conversations going on at the tables in La La Land. It's all decked out for like the holidays. So it's got a very like warm and cozy vibe inside. We'll see a little bit more of it uh, as we follow Sebastian through his day because we cut back to, and I, and I love this time jump that they do here. The moment that he rushes away from her and his convertible on the freeway before he goes and gets a coffee to sit and stare at uh, Van Beek's, which is another jazz club. And as we'll later learn, it has been turned into a um, samba and tapas place. <laughs> Whatever that might be. Jokes on history, I guess. (laughs) Uh, At his apartment later, his sister Lara is there. He has a much dingier apartment than uh, Mia. It seems uh, somewhat more realistic for (laughs) presumably his budget. Although he doesn't have any roommates, so whatever it is, he's paying full price. Hey, let's be honest. That one's only probably like a $2,000 apartment in LA. (laughs) That's true. That's true. Although he is... uh, basically unemployed so (laughs) how he's affording it is is a major question yeah again the real estate in this movie remains the most uh unrealistic feature i know that they like float into the observatory later but no 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 the real estate is where they're really starting to lose that suspension of disbelief uh he's got a bunch of boxes that he refuses to unpack until he owns his own jazz club so we're learning his motivations here he's really dedicated to jazz and he wants to own his own club to really share in the history of the place he's very set in his ways um, but his sister's like, look, I got a girl I want you to meet. Please, you know, just get yourself off the ropes. You know, life's really beating you up. Doesn't You, you were ripped off in the past, but your future's nebulous now. You got to work on that shit. Uh, and he says that he's actually pulling a rope of dope on life and he's going to be like a phoenix rising from the ashes um, and then proceeds to make some coffee and play the same jazz that we heard him listening to the playback of earlier practicing. So the the whole phoenix rising from the ashes thing, excellent quote. I love just the way he like, he's going to close the door and he's like, I'm a phoenix rising from the ashes. <laughs> but for some reason, the quote that has always stuck with me, and it's the most ridiculous of the quotes, is when his sister is like, here, I got you a throw rug. And he, he's like, he's like, why? I don't need that. And she's like, what if I told you Miles Davis pissed on it? <laughs> and he's, he's like, that's almost <laughs> insulting. Did he? So I, I love that. Yeah. This scene does a lot of legwork to establish exactly who he is as a character, but it does it incredibly well. Like you, you watch his conversation with his sister who you will never see again. You won't see his sister for the rest of the movie. We see her one more time. Uh, <laughs> we see her one more time? What scene do we see her? Uh, her, her I, I think it's supposed to be her wedding, but I'm not exactly sure. She's dancing with her husband. Gotcha. And he's playing the mm. piano. It's toward the end. I don't want to say too much, but yeah. he's Yeah. Okay. I wasn't sure whose wedding that was exactly when I took notes. I think I wrote it down as the wrong character. So we'll, I, we'll it could, it could be someone else's. I just have always <laughs> interpreted it as her wedding because why would Ryan mm-hmm. Gosling's character, Seb, be playing at somebody else's wedding? That makes sense. But that was just a guess. That that actually connects a lot of that. <laughs> <laughs> uh we, we cut from this scene to him playing at uh, our aforementioned restaurant, all decked out in Christmas gear, where as he arrives, he, he apologizes to the owner who is played by J.K. Simmons. So I did not catch his character name. He is forever in my mind. As, oh, it's J.K. Simmons, you know, from Whiplash. That, that's the connection I've always made is <laughs> it's it's the jazz teacher from Whiplash. He lost yeah. his jazz job and this is where he is now. He's owning this <laughs> restaurant and is very particular about what mm-hmm. music he once played. Yeah, he wants, you know, he wants Seb to stick to the set list. Seb is, he's like, no free jazz. I don't want none of that free jazz stuff. Just stick to the set list. Just play what we're paying you to pay. And Seb's like, yeah, 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 I got you. I got you. Stick stick to the set list. Only a little bit of free jazz. And Jackie Simmons is like, no, no free jazz. None of the free jazz. Don't stop improvising. I I thought this town worked on a kind of one for you, one for me basis. How about a two for you, one for me? How about all for you and none for me? I I love that scene too. (laughs) Yeah. 
Yeah, Seb is really trying to, you know, get uh, in for a penny and for a pound there. Uh, but he begins to play the piano and hits a lot of the classic uh, Christmas tunes. He's getting his tips in a fishbowl. Uh, no one's really paying attention to him and noticing that none of the customers seem to really be watching or listening to what Seb is doing. No one is appreciating excellent Christmas music playing. Nobody. <laughs> and I am uh, personally excellent offended. Piano. They went the extra mile for the live music and no one seems to care. He gets like a couple of tips, but nothing... No one's paying him any mind while they eat or drink or do whatever it is people are doing in this uh, smoke restaurant, smoke related restaurant. <laughs> As he sort of figures out that no one's paying that much attention to him, he starts switching to, you guessed it, free jazz and uh, <laughs> starts playing like uh, Mia and Sebastian's sort of theme that they have. I think it's literally called Mia it and is. Sebastian's theme on the vinyl. Yeah, that tracks. This will be a running motif throughout the movie uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with themes. We sort of fade to black one single spotlight on him as everything else around him fades away and he plays. He's the only one in this restaurant. Um, and as it, it gets more and more intense going from kind of soft to full on free jazz, as J.K. Simmons was so very against earlier, uh, we, we pan out to uh emma stone <laughs> mia looking at him <laughs> when he gets called off of the piano by the manager jk simmons again i feel like i need to constantly mention that this is jk simmons yeah, right. <laughs> scene it's sort of the same thing as when like dave bautista shows up in the beginning of blade runner 2049 and i'm like oh my god it's oh. Dave Bautista. now i can't focus on your character at all because i know that it's you. i always <laughs> forget that that happens in the beginning of blade runner to like i have expunged that from my memory because <laughs> all i remember is like the end for some reason yeah um but like the the crazy thing for me with like the so fun another fun fact while we're here Ooh. my understanding is Ryan Gosling was like insistent that he wanted to actually play the piano when he's filmed playing mm -hmm. the piano so he's actually playing there even if like I'm sure the sound is dubbed over with uh, Justin Hurwitz playing the piano but that's really him playing the piano and like absolutely crushing it like that is. Oh, yeah. Sounds beautiful. It's like a great song. And then like just I, I, I don't know. I don't know why any any appreciator of of music as clearly J.K. Simmons character is would be like opposed to that. Like it's clearly the best thing he's played all night. Exactly. And they do have a shot in the scene where I was because I, I I did not know that fun fact. And so I was sure I'm like, OK, well, there's a close up of his hand. Surely they will cut to his face and we'll can assume that the hands belong to someone else, but they actually pan up from the hands. And I'm like, oh, oh shit, that's really Ryan Gosling playing the piano. You can't fake that. Yeah, um, yeah I don't know why J.K. Simmons didn't let him get into that free jazz. I really think I just like the term free jazz, that he was really- He's very <laughs> anti-free jazz. Very anti-free jazz for a former music teacher. I like how we all just assume that that's the connection. We all assume <laughs> that that's who that it is. It has to be. It's that, or he could be um, J. Jonah Jameson maybe on his off week, you know. <laughs> <laughs> he he couldn't get spider-man so instead he'll come here and fire um seb maybe he's uh, which is probably what he does maybe he's oh who does he play uh he's detective gordon isn't he or he's commissioner gordon in justice league maybe he's commissioner gordon oh yeah they really like casting him as uh angry department heads or owners of things right <laughs> and he does a good job every time so i guess to be fair and then he's also the the pharmacy guy or the not pharmacy the insurance guy so there we go <laughs> Man, he really gets typecast a lot, doesn't he? Poor JK. Uh, Seb gets fired, and as he's sort of picking up his tips to leave in shame, uh, Mia starts to approach him to say how much she liked his playing, but he just knocks her shoulder and brushes right past her. And as the 
Uh, door closes. We hard cut to now Mia's hard knock life in a series of auditions where she's really giving it her all, going through some very like stereotypical parts. You got your hard knock cop, your medical drama. Yep. She's auditioning for a teacher in something. She's not good though. Like I, I want to prep. Like when mm-hmm. we had that early scene where she kills it, like doesn't get it but kills it. Then we have these where she's clearly not doing very well. Just is like not very good. Um, another great quote from here is the the casting director where she's like, lady, why you be tripping? No, Jamal, you be tripping. <laughs> you be tripping. <laughs> yeah, like it's just she's not doing very well. And it's like obvious that like she's kind of bombing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think I, it helps that the roles that she's auditioning for in those teams are so by the books for whatever show they're like. I don't get the title of uh, pretty much any of these at this point, but I I could probably tell you the plot of medical drama A police procedural b like there was these aren't the sort of roles that we really get the sense that Mia's gunning for so much as just she needs the work yeah it's more i need the money and i i need to do this mm-hmm. to pay my exuberant rent i <laughs> i don't actually want this mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and we leave the auditions as take on me starts playing it's spring now and we're at another hollywood party a pool party this time mia is there in another great dress this time yellow uh, and she's introduced to um, Carlo, a writer who talks a bunch as though he's talking in run-on sentences. And uh, he's not really an important character, but I did really appreciate his introduction being so fast. Well, he, <laughs> get, giving us so much information. Well, he he's funny to me because I think they did this on purpose. I think they intentionally cast somebody who is shorter than Emma Stone because he is yes. like two inches shorter than her. And it just feels intentional. Like you're supposed to think, Mm -hmm. I think when you see him, you're supposed to think this guy is not on Mia's level, even if he is quote unquote getting all this buzz. Like, like she, he is way, or she is way out of his league. Like she's here and he is, you know, way down somewhere in the bottom. Yeah. I think he's also like a very stereotypical, like this is an LA writer who's just, he's really working for the art, man. Yeah. (laughs) Working for his craft. Uh, sort of like the lead in Sunset Boulevard, whose name I'm blanking on. You know, he's just, he's scheming, he's gunning, he's selling, selling himself as a lot more than he actually is. And we're spending a lot of time on this guy who is not important <laughs> to the story. He has a moment of uh, relevance and then he's going to move on. Yep. Um, Mia sort of takes in the 80s pop covers that are playing at this party and goes to watch the band where she notices uh, very slowly we see her face sort of dawn with realization uh, the rude piano player from before, this time in a polyester suit with a keyboard and a guitar. He's got two keyboards accessible to him at all times. The band asks if anyone's got any requests and she raises her hand. She's like front and center of the crowd. Uh, and she requests I ran, which prompts Seb to slowly realize that uh, he recognizes Mia from before and that she's picking this to play with him. Uh, and she watches and dances along, kind of mocking him as he does the least that he needs to do. Uh, he later will talk about how picking Iran is the worst thing you could do to a serious musician. So later on at the party, Seb finds her and admits that he was an ass before. No, no, no. Uh, this is where he-, he he first says he was quite curt, <laughs> and she's like curt, mm. and he's like he's like all right, I was a bit of an asshole. <laughs> Exactly. They sort of have this like already uh, back and forth banter going just in this one conversation. 
he tells her that he's a serious musician. She's like, oh, that's why you're playing covers at this party. And she reveals that she's an actress, uh, mostly working at a coffee shop. So he's like, oh, I guess I'll see you in the movies as he gets pulled away uh, back to continue playing this gig at the party. As the sort of scene wraps up, the party's wrapping up later that night. uh, Mia is stuck talking to our boy Carlo. (laughs) He's back, everybody. Have you ever paid attention to what he's talking about? Because I have, and I think it's hilarious. I didn't note it down. So do you do you have it off the top of the? Dome? I I do. Yeah. He he yeah. he basically <laughs> is saying that the screenplay he's currently working on is a play on Goldilocks and the Three Bears, but from <laughs> the bear's perspective, which I think is hilarious. You know, the Goldilocks and the Three Bears, but from the bear's perspective pitch is not too out of place in 2016, honestly, because that was when we were getting a lot of those like fairy tales retold. You're like, um, what was the one that Jeremy Renner was in? Uh, Hansel and Gretel Witch Hunters and like all of that era. I'm not too surprised that's what he was pitching. All I can think <laughs> about on when I see think of Jeremy Runner is that song that went viral where he's like, Ask out a Buddha about Like I think that's all I think about now with Jeremy Runner. He's a fascinating celebrity. The Jeremy Renner, I don't have the Jeremy Renner app because I feel like that'd be taking it a step too far. But the fact that he created an app for himself, like I am obsessed with the idea of whatever Jeremy Renner is doing. I just it there's so much going on there, and I feel like we've only scratched the surface. Acting notwithstanding. Yeah. As uh, she's standing around at the party, Seb passes by and she sort of like uses him to get out of the situation, asking him to grab her keys for her. Uh, I love this because she's like, oh, it's a Prius. And he looks over at the keys on the rack and there's just a whole a whole rack of Prius keys, uh, which she points out like that's not that's not helpful. She specifies with the green ribbon and the two of them start taking off, walking towards their cars, chatting as they go down the night street. Uh, Mia is trying to find her car with little luck uh, when they approach a very lovely view and uh, another great musical number is about to begin here. A Lovely Night, a very soft kind of duet. And this is one of my favorite sort of like musical stock songs where two characters are in some sort of duet situation and they clearly like each other a lot, but don't want to say it. So all the lines sort of end really snappy and there's a lot of back and forth. They do a really good job of that here. You get a lot of that chemistry between Emma Stone and Ryan Gosling coming through in this number. Uh, and some really fun tap dancing, which can't say no to that. Yeah, so I, I think they are like, this is like, this is probably my favorite song, probably my favorite scene. It is like the quintessential, mm-hmm. if you don't see this movie, at least watch this scene kind of thing. Yeah. Because I think they do a good job playing off each other. Um, why I'm in the realm of fun facts, I'm pretty sure where they shot that is one of the walking paths on your way up to Griffith Observatory. The thing of note though the benches they sit on and that light post those were only there for the movie those are not actually on that road in any capacity so i remember when like i was walking up it i was like i was like oh i'm pretty sure this was the view right here but you can't really tell because there's no clear identifiers for you to be like yeah this is 100 mm-hmm. percent where they tap danced so it's it's i just i just love that scene i think the tap dancing was really good i think like you said, you get all the chemistry you want out of them. They like seem like a lot of fun. They're, I don't know. They just, I, this scene was the scene that made me go like, I would like these two to go to my wedding. They they would be fun at a <laughs> wedding. Yeah, they do. They seem like ideal wedding guests. They'd really keep the dance floor moving. Uh, I really like in this scene, especially too, there's just a little detail where um, Mia is wearing heels at the beginning and she sits down to switch to her tap shoes. And it's the same move that every girl has done at the end of the party when you're switching to your flats, but they use it to get it into her into her tap shoes here. And I just think that's such a smooth way to move us through that action. So rather than having her like switch her costume randomly, 
before they start walking down the street, they do this. And I, I love, I love it when they can figure out like a diegetic way for a character to get into a very specific costume piece. I've never heard the word diegetic before right now. That is great word. I know exactly (laughs) what it means too, based on like the way you used that was fantastic. I also wanted to say though, that something this scene does that I feel like a lot of people don't talk about. This scene does a good job of building tension because it's Mm -hmm. building toward something it's clear like these two like you said they have feelings the all the lyrics are hinting toward that you know it's a waste of lovely night you know they don't want to waste the lovely Mm -hmm. night and right before they're about to have like the big dramatic kiss she gets a call from her her boojom and her boojom it's her boy greg exactly the boy (laughs) greg even though we'll get to greg in a minute not a big greg fan oh man um no they they do a really good job of using this scene to build that tension of will they won't they and just kind of mm-hmm. leaving you on that cliffhanger of like you kind of know how it's gonna go but they don't give you that instant gratification yeah like yeah it's it's again it's a cliffhanger it's a teaser for the relationship we'll see in the rest of the movie speaking of a bit of a teaser greg her boyfriend of one month question mark someone she's been seeing for a while uh calls mia and interrupts their moment and uh she has to take off. And as she sort of puts her uh, earlier in the scene, Seb had told her that if you hold your key up to your chin to press the button to try and sound out your car, it works better. Have you ever done that? About your head working as an antenna. I haven't done it. I, I don't have. have currently have a car, so I don't know. If, has it worked? Uh, it, so one time I did have it work. This was back like I was driving a different car at the time and the key fob mm-hmm. was horrible. And I was just like, all right, I got to figure <laughs> out like if this works. And I tried it and it did in fact work. Like I was standing there doing this, not working, did this, it immediately worked. I was like, all right, that's weird. Ooh, wow. That's, there's a life hack built into Lala. That's great. That's good to know. That's actually very useful I had, information. I had I'm heard that before this movie though. So like it was one of those things where really? it's like, I had tried it before the movie. I saw it in the movie. The person I watched it with was like, there's no way that's real. No, I was like, no, I swear to you that this really works. <laughs> Wow, pro tip and life tips coming at you from a uh, good old La La Land here. Um, Seb walks Mia to her car, uh, you know, sending her off before walking to his own. He he has a really cute moment here where he walks into her car. She's like, oh, I'll drive you to yours. And he's like, oh, no, I'm just up that way. Uh, and then we see him walk back to the front of the party. He was parked right across the street. It's so he cute. Just- went on the walk with her to go with her it was very oh, it's very sweet yeah it's it there's a lot of those moments in this movie that are just like super like i don't know if like sweet cute whatever you want to call it like they're innocent in a way mm-hmm. where it's like they're yeah i don't innocence the only word i got for it I, they're just I, i'm a big huge fan yeah it's very wholesome and romantic and like it's like that like kind of like idealized romance that you would get in these like class like american in paris is gonna be the movie that i've referenced a thousand times in this because that's a heavily referenced movie in this uh, heavily referenced movie for this movie. A lot of words that are the same in that sentence. Well, and I, I think too, they, I think they do a good job of like building up his character a little more. Cause like up to this point, mm-hmm. he's kind of been an a-hole and not very likable. Mm-hmm. And like, you like him because it's Ryan Gosling, but he hasn't actually done anything as a character to make you go like, he's a good guy. And then you see right. this, you're like, oh, he's a good guy. He's just kind of like, he gets kind of wrapped up in the LA of it all and having to be fast and always moving. And I got to go, 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 go. When it's like, when he takes mm-hmm. a second to slow down, like he's actually a genuinely good person. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, so the next day at work, Mia is having a bit of a rough time. There's a lot of ladies coming up trying to get her croissant gluten-free, but 
Fortunately, by the nature of being a croissant, it is not, in fact, gluten-free. That's what I, I love that scene because she's like, is this gluten-free? And literally everyone's reaction is, no, it's a croissant. No. <laughs> it's it's a baked good. It's a baked good being sold. In. I don't know what you expected, lady, but she's having a real Karen moment. Uh, Mia goes off to find her manager who kind of like gives her the runaround. It's like, you got to come in even though you, you have an audition. And as she's in the midst of having this particularly rough time, uh, Seb rolls up to the counter. She's like, how'd you get onto the lot? And he's like, oh, I just sort of booked it past the gate. I got about 30 minutes before they find me. Uh, and he goes to hide in the bathroom while she finishes her shift. <laughs> I love that. I, I, they don't show us him booking it past the gate, oh. but I love the mental image of like Ryan Gosling jumping over the, well, it's great <laughs> the he, gate at the Warner lot. He runs into the coffee shop and he gets to the front and goes, you again like it's like he's surprised she's there or whatever <laughs> mm-hmm. and it's just it, again it's another like just really cute moment of like again i think it's another character building moment for him of like he clearly is an attentive person and like listens because mm-hmm. this was something she said kind of in a one-off like oh i work in the as they're like basically in an argument she's like yeah. i'm a barista on the warner brothers lot and he remembered that and cared enough that he booked it past the guards Yes. I have just walked onto the Warner Brothers lot before. I had a friend who was working there and like she's just like, oh, just come to the parking garage. No one no one ever checks the gate there. I was like, really? I was able to walk onto the lot that way. So I guess maybe Ryan Gosling just needed to use the right entrance. That was not my experience because I, I also <laughs> knew somebody who worked for Warner Brothers and it was still like security had to give you all these IDs and whatnot. Granted, it was like a weekday. So that maybe that's mm. why. But yeah. Yeah, no idea. Maybe I just like snuck. I don't did I sneak onto the Warner Brothers? Did you trespass and are you now admitting that <laughs> like on the podcast? If anyone from Warner Brothers is listening, I've never been on the lot. I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, Talk to my lawyer. So she, yes. Um, <clears throat> but <laughs> she gets off of her shift and starts walking around the lot with him and they they chat a bit. Uh, Seb asks about Greg because she sort of like dismisses like, oh, we've been seeing each other for like a month. She mentions how much she loves working around all this stuff. And she points out a window that she says is from Casablanca, where uh, <laughs> Ingrid Berman, Erd Birdman and uh, Humphrey Bogart, right? Look out in Casablanca. Uh, is this the scene where she's saying something incorrect? Correct. She she is one window. Oh, she is one window wrong. It's the window next mm. to the one she's pointing at. So she's off by one. I don't know if you blame Emma Stone, Damien Chazelle, or somebody else for this, but somebody messed <laughs> up and they are quick to correct that on the Warner Brothers tour to be like, because like literally on my tour, because they ask you before you do your tour is like, what movies does everyone like or what TV shows? Mm-hmm. And I said La La Land. So when we got to that point, they're like, like, yeah, so like she points at this window. That's not the window. It's this window. <laughs> what a goof for the IMDb goof section they've put into this movie. I guess if you're going to have something be wrong, pointing out the wrong window is probably a pretty safe bet. It's a good in one. Terms of, yeah, it's not like a Starbucks cup in the back of the shot of Game of Thrones kind of thing. You know, it's a pretty forgivable error. Don't even <laughs> get me started on season eight of Game of Thrones. <laughs> we'll save it for another podcast. <laughs> she, uh, you know, talked about how much she loves working around all this stuff. And Seb's like, yeah, I get it. I go like five miles out of my way to get coffee across from Van Beek, this place that used to be this really famous big jazz club and is now uh, the aforementioned Samba's Tapas place. Um, they both express confusion at that concept before. I, there's a moment in the scene where they're talking and they walk past a, a movie that's actively shooting and they're rolling. And so they switch to, to whispering as Mia explains a very emotional uh, bit of backstory about her. She's like, why you got into acting? She explains, you know, 
her aunt and her used to watch a lot of old movies together and then she would act in her her room as a child etc etc it's very heartfelt and because she's whispering for this delivery you get a little bit of like okay this is a quieter more serious moment and then the movie wraps shooting and they pick back up into kind of more of their quippier jauntier conversation and i just love that little bit of like direction that they Mm. did there they sort of peek into a soundstage it's all very pretty lit very red uh, as then Mia and Sebastian's theme starts to pick up in the background and they continue walking along and chatting. Mia expresses like kind of her frustration at the roles that she hasn't been able to get and Seb encourages her to just write her own roles, write something worthy of like you you as a person, your individuality. He calls her a, a playwright prodigy and she's like, I didn't say that. And he, goes, <laughs> he goes, no, you're too modest. And I, I just love that. He's really gassing her up. Yeah, it's. I think it's a really good like example of Seb's character too, because he is very much the kind of person who's like, I want to do things this very specific way that I have in my mind. I'm very like off book, uh, and Mia seems to be more trying to like play not with the system is the wrong word, but she's playing within the system for lack of a better description. Yeah, she is, uh, and Seb is like, yeah, you got you got to go all free jazz on it, you know, you got to improvise, and I think that that's a nice like contrast in their characters that'll sort of kind of move be closer together as we see them get closer too. Uh, she, she mentions that she hates jazz, which stops Seb dead in his tracks. He fully stops moving uh, and starts to <laughs> be like, no, we got to fix this. So they go to a jazz club called The Lighthouse, where a really great track is playing. Um, the Lighthouse is real, by the way. The Lighthouse is real. It's a real location. That is a real location. That is the real name of the location. It is located uh, right off of it's located in Hermosa, right off of the Hermosa Pier. I actually went, so when I went, the person I went with, we timed it so, so that we could not timed it in this way intentionally, but like when they were there, we were like, all right, let's look at their, their calendar of events. Do they have a jazz night? Because the reason we're going is La La Land. So we should go on a jazz night. Right. I was there for a Wednesday night jazz night and it's awesome. It's just this bar in, in Hermosa. Oh, that's so cool. I, I love that. I'm glad you can actually hear jazz there too. It's not just like, well, we use this location, but we changed its purpose entirely. I love when there's like actual continuity between the location on screen and the location in reality. Now, I don't know if she's in the movie, but the people who own it, it was this husband wife duo. I think the husband has since mm-hmm. passed since the movie has come out, but she like still is there every night roaming the lighthouse and has a photo book and whatnot of like all these moments that have happened at the lighthouse and she will like come oh, up to you and like tell you these stories. We'll like show you all these photos she has. I don't remember her name, but she was like the sweetest old woman I've ever met in my life. Oh, that's fun. I love love a good old woman full of stories. That's a very specific thing to say. But there were a few times where I was in uh, Shanghai and we would go out to eat at this one restaurant that had this one owner who was always there. And she did something very similar. Um but in Mandarin, so sometimes I think I did miss a little bit of the point. See, they they in the lighthouse they have. I forget if it's a photo, if it's a poster. It's one of the two of the movie that is signed by mm-hmm. like Ryan Gosling, Emma Stone, Damien Chazelle, and like they have it up in the back. So like they're very proud of the fact that like this was the location chosen to shoot this movie. And the lighthouse is like it, it's as charming in person as it appears to be in the movie, in my opinion. Oh, that's excellent. We we love to hear it at the lighthouse. Seb is talking uh, to me about how you know like jazz is it's, a, it's alive it's, it's contested she's like well you know I, jazz to me has always been this like elevator music there's this one jazz station to listen to back home that just played the same thing over and over again and it's kind of boring and he's like no jazz is new every time it's it's 
it's dying and contested and crazy and uh, free jazz. Real quick, <laughs> why he's telling this, I think, again, this is a thing I noticed watching it this time again. If you watch Ryan Gosling's acting here, absolutely mm-hmm. nails like that, that the mannerisms of somebody who's like in a frustrating conversation trying to explain themselves because he does that whole mm-hmm. thing where he like he rubs his fingers against his eyebrows and like puts his <laughs> hand and then he like stop he goes oh okay okay hold on and then like has to like try and convince this person he just nails it just ab- the the amount of times in this movie where you're like yes they're acting but like it's they're nailing what they're going for is it's very high Oh yeah, I fully believe Ryan Gosling like lives and dies for jazz. Uh, I think Damien Chazelle might live and die for jazz, considering <laughs> that his, might be true. <laughs> well, his first movie is about like a trumpet player. He has Whiplash, and then he has mm-hmm. La La Land. So clearly, this man has some sort of soft spot for jazz that I'm just not. I'm not sure what it is. Yeah, I mean it. It makes sense too because the decision to make Seb a jazz musician as opposed to any other type of struggling musician is very specific and it works great for the movie because it results in this really fantastic soundtrack but uh it is a choice (laughs) it is a choice trying to convince your audience to care a lot about jazz he describes jazz as sort of dying and he's like a paladin of jazz which is why he wants his own club where he can play pure jazz he says a lot jazz a lot in this conversation uh and it's sort of explaining his his want of the movie while they're at the club, Mia steps away and gets a callback for one of the roles we saw her auditioning for earlier, the teacher that said the wonderful Your Trip and Jamal line. Uh, and Seb offers to take her to see a movie Rebel Without a Cause, quote unquote, for research. We all know she what that means. We all know what that means. Uh, and uh, they sort of go their separate ways for the moment. Seb goes off to the pier to do the first uh, version of City of Stars, sort of like the soft romantic song of the movie there's a reprise of it a little bit later my favorite version of city of the stars is this first one yes yes absolutely i <laughs> my one like musical complaint with this movie when it came out was that there's just too many versions of city of stars because they nailed it the first time and then they just keep going back to it and i'm like guys come on i i like that they <laughs> go back it to it but i i like this first version it, again it's either this or a lovely night or my favorite songs there's something about mm-hmm. the the re- the relatability and lyrics of what Ryan Gosling's singing about because you know he's part singing about his career and like not having made it and also mm-hmm. singing about like is this thing with Mia just another thing that is like gonna just fall by the wayside and I just love love the way he sings about that and the way this is this song is portrayed through its lyrics it's it's because they're not really showing you anything with him on the pier alone it's it, this is all even right. though it looks beautiful again lamp posts there that are on the pier <laughs> those are a production touch they do not actually exist um <laughs> it yeah it, i just love love this from ryan gosling and he sounds great yeah no it, it's a beautiful scene there's a they make him whistle a lot in this movie he does some whistling in this song uh and then one of my favorite moments of this is when there's an old couple dancing on the pier and ryan gosling seb walks up and starts dancing with the guy's wife and the guy like very annoyed like taps him is like hey dude what are you doing all with his face there's no lines because he's still singing city of stars and like pulls his wife back. it's a real jeff bezos leonardo dicaprio thing going on there <laughs> Yeah, exactly that. Um, but it's just, it adds to sort of like, Seb is just a very easy, charming guy. I mean, look, it's Ryan or, or Gosling. Ryan Gosling is, yeah. Look at him. <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> it's, 
if right because the wife seems so chill with it like but thinking back if someone was dancing with me and then ryan gosling cut in i would not be mad about that at all what are you, what are you talking about i wouldn't be mad about that ryan gosling would dance with me any day of the week <laughs> exactly look at him he's gorgeous he was great in what drive drive's a really good movie. <laughs> Drive is also really good. But we're not talking about Drive today. We're talking about <laughs> La La Land. So speaking of La La Land, Mia uh, arrives for her callback with some more very bored, uh, unattached casting directors. One is just on his phone the whole time. She says exactly one line and they interrupt her at the very end of it and thank her for her time having her leave. This audition that she was very excited for is another, another flop, uh, unfortunately. Storming out, she drives past the Rialto where Rebel Without a Cause is playing and seeing her future date kind of perks back up a bit. She's she's excited. She's happy. So while we're on the topic of the Rialto, the Rialto is actually no longer in operation and was not in mm. operation when La La Land was filmed. They rented it out specifically to like film in there and like show this, you know, this fake showing of Rebel Without a Cause. Oh, I love that. R.I.P. the Rialto. R.I.P. to the Rialto. They use a lot of really interesting locations in this movie, and I'm impressed with how much of it they shot on location as opposed to on a soundstage, because it really does like add something. Mm-hmm. Adds a lot of character. Yeah. you get a real the, the city of L.A. is as much a character in this movie as any of the characters are, and you get a better sense of that by them shooting on location, even if they are changing the locations up somewhat to fit the movie. Which is why it's still so shocking to me this didn't win Best Picture, because it felt <laughs> like it appealed directly to the exact people who were voting for Best Picture. And, I mean, obviously I'm biased. I think it should have won despite what people feel about Moonlight. Uh, I just, I mean, clearly I love this movie. Moonlight, obviously mm-hmm. very deserving in its own way, but uh, craziness. I mean, I feel like this is as good a time to broach this as anything, but like, where were you when you watched them read La La Land out for Best Picture and then have to take it back? Because I have very, sp- I, I really like the Oscars. I like watching them. I think it's sort of like an event. It's, it's the Olympics of the movie world or whatever. But uh, I remember very specifically like sitting in my college dorm room watching them call La La Land incorrectly and then have to walk it back and immediately getting like texts and phone calls from other friends watching it like oh my god did you see the Oscars just absolutely f that up I think I was watching it in my apartment if I'm not mistaken in uh in state college and Mm -hmm. I remember it was one of those things where I expected La La Land to win so it was one of those things where it's like they announced it and I was like oh yeah it's cool like I love the movie I'm happy they won and then they walked it back and I was like oh wow that's wild I never saw this coming yeah, it's just like, I think it's the most clear moment for me in recent memory, at least, where they really like messed up something uh, in the middle of the ceremony. And so it was just unexpected and all because I wasn't that surprised if La La Land led one. I, re- I really like Moonlight. I'm glad that it won Best Picture, but I wouldn't have, like you said, it's it's a movie about LA and about the industry in a way and Hollywood loves rewarding those. So I wasn't too surprised to hear them read out La La Land. Uh, so the moment they walked it back was just every year they make a joke about that. I think it gets funnier. I, I know it's a tired joke, but that moment like lives rent free in my head now. Not to go too far down the rabbit hole, but I just think like mm-hmm. like La La Land would have been an easy choice for them for best picture. Whereas yeah. Moonlight is not your typical best picture winner. That and like like even something like Shape of Water to me, like are not yeah. your typical best picture winners. And the fact that in the last couple of years we have had some out of out of left field is probably not the right word, but like movies you wouldn't pick to win Best Picture, win Best Picture has been really cool. And then they shoot themselves in the foot by giving like Green Book Best Picture. So 
Yeah, I, I went on a little bit of an adventure trying to watch every Best Picture winner in order uh, during the pandemic. What and was the you worst can really one? See, like, oh, oh, and why right, was okay. it Forrest so, Gump? <laughs> I only made it to 1970. I got to the French Connection and then I've been stalled out mm. for a while. I'm still working on it. But of the early movies, so there's one movie called Cavalcade that's just okay, but has a really great, amazing Titanic scene in it. Um, what is the name of that other movie? Before we get, while you look that up, I, I just would like yeah. to throw out there, if you ever need someone to come on and slander Forrest Gump, <laughs> I am your guy. That movie, if you go through, beat Schindler's List, Pulp Fiction, and Quiz Show to win Best Picture. I believe there's another like really big movie that it, it beat. How did Forrest Gump win Best Picture? How? It is clearly the worst movie of its year that was nominated. <laughs> it's absurd to me that it won. Pick it for your next episode and we can trash it oh, all day. Oh, my God. Uh, but Sumerian is the movie I'm thinking of. It's just terrible. It's like the second Best Picture winner. It's awful. <laughs> I hate it so much. Um, it just It's like a, the worst version of To Kill a Mockingbird, and it's all about the founding of Oklahoma. I don't recommend it. If you're watching all the Best Picture winners, just skip it. Uh, but to get back to the movie at, <laughs> to get back to the movie at hand, um, speaking of almost Best Picture winners... Uh, we go back to Mia at home where Greg shows up to pick her up. Apparently she had forgotten that she had plans that night uh, and she gets all dressed up to go to dinner with Greg and his brother and her his brother's fiance, I guess, or girlfriend. Um, wife. She's in this very, another, wife? Are they married? I don't know. I thought they were. Maybe I'm wrong. They don't, they're not very clear on it, but I, I caught the vibe they were married because she's talking about like their house and like their theater and mm. it just feels like very married things unless she's just living the life of, of side john i don't I, that could be the, the case <laughs> yeah she's in another really great dress again i love all of mia's dresses in this movie they're just all gorgeous this one's green we're cycling through the color wheel um, she also perfectly matches greg if you've noticed that greg is as on some sort of greenish tint i forget if it's a tie or the jacket is green but like they perfectly they're doing match. like the same coordination you would do for like a prom yeah you know? they've got <laughs> they're perfectly color coordinated uh, and in a very kind of ironic conversation, the crew that she's at the table with are sort of complaining about theaters these days and how inconvenient it is to go out to the movies. They're and so all that. dirty. Oh, just the worst. And she's sort of sitting quietly contemplating. I have to point out as someone who ha speaks some Mandarin that the brother in this scene gets a call on his businessman business phone. And he says like one line in Mandarin and he's over exaggerates and pronounces it in the exact way that every actor who only has to speak one line of Mandarin and doesn't actually know Chinese does where it's like incredibly specifically pronounced like xie, xie. And I'm like, okay, dude, you can tone it back about two, tone it back about two tones. You're going way too hard on this. Meanwhile, Seb is waiting outside of the theater for uh, his date, Mia. She's double booked. Oh, big sad. One, one single tear. <laughs> As Mia's sort of sitting at this dinner, uh, lost out of, out of the loop of the conversation, she hears Mia and Sebastian's theme sort of pick up in the background as she sits at the table and she gets really pulled into the jazz of it all, even though it's just playing through speakers. And as she sort of hears it, she decides, I can't do this. And she leaves dinner saying sorry to Greg, who will now exit the movie for a while uh, Forever. and runs Forever. Goodbye, Greg. Another another side character come and gone. Um, right, and she runs down the street in heels, which is an impressive feat in and of itself, uh, to the theater where Seb is sitting in the seats. Real quick, is the is the suggestion of that song playing over the speakers, does that mean this is 
not an original song by Ryan Gosling because if it's playing over or by right. Seb because if it's playing over the speakers that means it couldn't be an original song right unless she's just creating that song in her head out of whatever is actually playing I have to imagine it means it's not an original song by Seb but that also sort of fits with Seb's whole thing because he does play a lot of he doesn't make his, his whole thing's not creating his own jazz it's a lot of revisiting the classics in a new way so i wouldn't be too surprised if he was like i really like this track but when when they play it later in the movie it it has this feel like it's supposed to be original i don't know i'm i'm mm. always been torn on this whether or not it's just like her <laughs> her imagining she just hears jazz and puts the two together and the song is mm-hmm. supposed to be just for us or if that is literally the song she is hearing yeah, I could see it going both ways. It's really hard to say because it could just be like she's filling in where we, the audience, are being filled in for just this theme and she's hearing any jazz. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I don't I don't know about that. I don't know which way I would fall on that. That's a that's a good debate to be had. It diminishes his character to me if mm. if it's not an original song, because I think the appeal of that whole scene, uh, I think that Lipton's or whatever is that he's playing an original composition. And mm-hmm. to me, that is the appeal of that. Yeah, I, it does cheapen that scene if he is pulling from something that exists since he is in that moment breaking the set list as it was. To break it with something that's all his own really does have more impact. In theater, Seb is sitting and he keeps turning around in his seat to look to see if Mia walks in. Uh, and she walks directly in front of the project, <laughs> in front of the screen at the front of the theater. No one says anything, which... If you walk into a movie theater and I'm sitting there and you walk and stand directly in front of the screen, I'm calling you out on it. <laughs> immediately. <laughs> immediately. Immediately. But she manages to stand up there for a few seconds uh, until Seb spots her and stands up and they go to sit to watch the rest of the movie. Rebel Without a Cause with, of course, its iconic Griffith Observatory bit. Mia tries to be slick to like get him to hold her hand and they both very slowly move their hands <laughs> into the seats next to each other. Don't you dare make fun of this because to me, <laughs> I don't know... I don't know how you feel about this. I have never seen a movie perfectly capture what I think is a very real moment that like many people have had on their first dates. Like I saw this happening and I was like, I have lived this multiple times. This has happened to me before. I I know this is real and I've never seen a movie capture it the way they did. Like they nail what that feeling is like. I think that the fact of how much they slow it down really helps sell that because this moment goes on for quite a while. And, and that sort of, I think, exaggerates the feeling of nervousness. Uh, so I, I agree with you. They do a really good job of it. It's sort of funny out of context, but within the sphere of the movie, it's it, it's really well done. Yeah, you better not make fun of that. It's one of, one, another <laughs> one of my like favorite moments in the movie. It's so cute. Their whole relationship is is very cute, The especially this first like getting to know each other bit. It's True. A, butterflies for days they are just about to kiss as the film catches fire or stalls out in the theater and the lights all go back on uh rip to their nine millimeter (laughs) mia notices the film is off she says i have an idea and they make for the griffith observatory just like they were watching in the movie a moment ago um so great great thing to point out here both rebel out without a cause and La La Land do this thing that you're literally not allowed to do, which is drive directly all the way up to the Griffith Observatory. Like where you see yes. them drive both in Rebel Without a Cause and in La La Land, you are not <laughs> allowed to drive on that. That is a strictly walking path. And the parking is like mm-hmm. way back. Only movie that gets it right is um, 
Oh, what's the movie? Um, Zoe Deschanel is in it. Uh, yes, man. They're the only movie oh. that gets it right. Yeah, that's one of those things. So I went to LA like two years ago to stay with some of my friends that live up there. Uh, and we went to the Griffith Observatory. I was surprised that you couldn't just like drive right up to it because I've only ever seen it in movies where, of course, like you mentioned, they just go straight up to it. So it's really took me for a loop. So pro tip. What did you think of the Griffith <laughs> Observatory? Because I, I loved it. I thought it was awesome. The views you can get up there are absurd. And the observatory oh, yeah. itself is like really cool. Oh, yeah. It's one of my favorite places in LA. I just yep. I love going up there and just like seeing the whole city from the top. And the observatory itself is great. I'm a big space nerd. So I love, yep. you know, going to see some plan- some fun planet stuff. And then you go outside and you get some really amazing views. Um, I went there right as the sun was setting one time. And it was just like gorgeous. I went there at night, so it was like the lights in LA were all lit, and I thought that was pretty Ooh. cool. I want to do it again, like during the day, though, because I think it would mm-hmm. just like you'll get better photos. I didn't get great photos because you know it's <laughs> I'm, I'm not out there with like a DSLR taking like nighttime photography. It's just it just didn't work as well. <laughs> yeah, you gotta get those pics for the gram, you know. Really Facts. Show it off. <laughs> Uh, inside, they're sort of obs- exploring this empty uh, Griffith Observatory, which is the most empty that I've ever seen the Griffith Observatory. They're definitely there after hours. They broke in. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. Well, we already know that Seb jumped the gate to get into the Warner Brothers lot. So clearly he's familiar with the concept of breaking and entering. Uh- <laughs> he's been to jail a few times. It's the part of his character they don't tell you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's where he learned to play jazz. You know, it's like the like in Cool Hand Luke or something. It's getting the whole prison band together. Um <laughs> They have this very, uh, I love, there's a lot of really great dance scenes in this movie. This is another one of them where um, they're sort of dancing around this empty observatory exploring and uh, they do something that I think is extremely well executed where they have this sort of dream dance sequence, this dream waltz through the stars where they float up in the observatory and are dancing in, you know, what is clearly special effects. But I think that this is a really interesting way of sort of redoing the dream sequences in some movie musicals of old, again, specifically in American in Paris, but we'll get back to that later and because there's a very explicit reference to that movie at the end where they're kind of making use of the more modern special effects, but they're doing it in such an unrealistic way that it doesn't really break the suspension of disbelief at all or break the charm of the movie. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that it all sort of works because it's such an unrealistic situation done in a more realistic format. Well, I also think it works because if this wasn't a musical, I don't think it works. Mm -hmm. I think making it a musical you kind of just are okay with it because we've all seen musicals and like there are just things that like there are aspects of musicals that don't really make sense that if it was like a real movie you'd be like oh well that doesn't make any sense that would never actually happen where it's like Mm -hmm. you just make it a musical and you just suspend your disbelief because it's a musical yeah it's it's that sort of like magical feeling of watching Mm -hmm. a musical you know it's it's big and it's over the top and it's unrealistic, but you don't care because you're swept up in the the theater of it all. Mm-hmm. Uh, so floating back down, they finally kiss after many near misses and the screen circle, circle wipes to black, which I just, I love a good well done wipe. And they do so many of them in this movie. The editing in this, uh, you really see it here, but they do such a good job of emulating that like classic style of editing before everything got super smooth and match cutty it's all like you can see where cuts are you can see where fades and wipes are and i am such a nerd for that so you must be a huge fan of the star wars prequels all the uh all the wipes (laughs) 
You know, I actually kind of do appreciate that Star Wars is such a consistent editing style and it made me kind of sad that in The Last Jedi they don't do as many of the wipes because I was like, it doesn't look like Star Wars, but that's a that's a conversation for a whole other time. Do not get me started on The Last Jedi. <laughs> I love that movie. I'm in the minority. Yeah, we'll, we'll move on because I feel like we get stuck there for a while. We would. <laughs> Uh, later on, Mia is beginning to write uh, a play, uh, a one-woman show. She explains to her roommates while immediately demand parts in it. Uh, when a, a loud, consistent horn from outside alerts her that Seb is here to pick her up, she runs out and gets in his uh, burgundy convertible. And they immediately drive off and turn down a one-way street. And they they drive around the corner and then they reverse on back with a truck going forward. It's very, very funny. There's some really good physical comedy in this movie, uh, which you don't necessarily get in a lot of musicals. And I was very excited to see here. While we're on the topic of his car, uh, they weren't sure Mm -hmm. what car to give him. I I literally looked this up the other day because I was like, what car is that? I kind of want that car. That's kind of a (laughs) cool car. It's like an eight. It's like an 83 Buick something or another. I don't remember the exact name of the car. I'm not like Mm -hmm. a big car guy. But they were basically like gave him options of like, what car do you think this character would drive? And Ryan Gosling picked this car out. It really does fit Seb perfectly. Like, I I feel like you learn so much about his character just from like this burgundy kind of beat up older convertible that he drives. I'm like oh you're an old soul like i understand you're an old soul but you're like a you think you're like a cool old soul you know i got a little bit of too much personality from you good choice ryan gosling it is also a great car i would love to drive this car it's just yeah beautiful i mean i used to drive a convertible (laughs) it's kind of awesome driving a convertible Ooh, that's like a bucket list kind of like thing to uh, to do. I don't know. I've only ever drove like lemons as a as a when I had co- I live in New York now, so I don't really drive ever anymore. But um, I, I exclusively drew like a 98 Toyota Corolla for years that like the door handle fell off. We just tied a rope to the to the mechanic inside it so you could still open the back door. And like the rear view mirror was taped on like I have never drove or driven a nice car. I would love to drive a convertible someday. I drove in high school. Actually, I'm surprised you didn't know this about me. I had a nine. 98 uh mustang gt that was it had like the it was like this ugly green i did not like the color and it had a uh brown like leather top and literally every single day after school if it was nice out literally nice to me it was like 65 or higher top was going down (laughs) windows are going down and we had like a subwoofer and whatnot in the trunk of the car and so like the music was gonna be loud too and it was great (laughs) Oh man, I man, how did I miss that? I I, I <laughs> don't know. Jamming. I I can't believe you didn't Magic. know I had that car because I <laughs> I had it up until at least when I met you in high school. Like that first half of my senior year, I had it, and then it needed like three thousand dollars in repairs, and the car wasn't worth oh. three thousand dollars, so we got rid of it. <sighs> Tragic loss. R.I.P. My homie. R.I.P. <laughs> Pour one out for all the uh, crappy cars you left behind. Uh, but we we transition into summertime now. We get a very, very cute montage of me and Sebastian going on a variety of dates, including vandalizing uh, Van Beek's Samba and Tapa's place. Uh, he's a criminal. <laughs> he's a criminal. He's got a he's got a criminal streak. As we've learned through context clues, Seb is uh, into some illegal shit. <laughs> I love that. I mean, aren't we all into just a slightly illegal things like just just. A Light vandalism, you know? Even just if a it's smidge. crosswalking or, or crosswalking, jaywalking. <laughs> jaywalking. Yeah, crosswalking is the legal one. No. Yes, yes. <laughs> what was the other thing? On their montage, I only know this because, oh, so 
I tried to do like as many things from this movie as you can physically do as possible. Mm-hmm. One of the things they do on their montage is ride this like trolley thing that like it starts on the ground, oh, it's going yeah. up. You can't ride that. That's like not a thing you can actually ride. I don't know how they, who they paid and how they actually were allowed to do that. But like, because it does operate, you're just not allowed to ride it anymore. And they were. So it's just like empty tram cars going up and down something? They don't move. They just sit there. It's just like a visually appealing thing to look at. Huh. That's my understanding anyway. Like I I, like looked it up and everything. And I was like, really? You can't ride these? Like I literally just want to go up and then get off and, (laughs) you know mess with the guy yeah, in the toll booth little... like they do in the movie <laughs> you just want to relive your la la land moment yeah speaking of reliving their moments they sort of recreate their their first date at the lighthouse where uh but this time seb is on stage stage playing some jazz and mia is really jamming out in the crowd <laughs> uh and they really kind of like compensate for having fewer ensemble numbers later in the movie by having some really great like dance choreography and I, they sw- they rapidly kind of pan between uh, Seb and Mia in the scene and it really works to see her jamming out in the crowd in the middle of an impromptu dance circle that's sort of forming. As they kind of chill in the club later on, uh, Keith shows up, aka John Legend, <laughs> another character where I'm like, oh, it's John Legend every time he's on screen as opposed to Keith. He's essentially playing himself. That's that's yeah. the thing. <laughs> it's really hard to differentiate there. Um, you know who else falls in this category while we're thinking about it? Harry Styles and Dunkirk falls into this category yes. for me. So hard to not just think, oh, it's Harry Styles every time he pops up. Yep, bad casting. <sighs> bad casting. <laughs> uh, Keith, aka John Legend, comes up and says hey to Sebastian and explains to Mia that they used to play together and he's very, very friendly. Uh, and he's like, hey, I'm looking for keys in my new combo, which is some jazz lingo that I was learning in the moment. Uh, <laughs> and Seb is like turning him down, even though it's a gig that pays. Later that night, uh, back at Seb's place, Mia finishes reading her play to him and said like, it's genius, it's great, you're killing it. Uh, Before Mia reveals the logo she made for Seb's, the jazz club he wants to open. Although he is staunchly sure that he wants to use Van Van Beek's location and he wants to name it Chicken on a Stick in reference to uh, old jazz lore. (laughs) Yeah, it's something about like someone had, had, I I don't even remember the story. Honestly, I don't remember it because he's wrong. She's 100% mm-hmm. right. Chicken on a Stick is a bad name. It's a bad name. Seb's is much better. Yeah. He's like, we're going to serve like chicken and jazz there. And I'm like, no, man, stick to just do the jazz <laughs> or the chicken. Pick one. And the beer. <laughs> Don't forget about the beer. And the beer, of course. Well, that's a given, you know. You got to have drinks at the jazz club. I feel like those two things have to go together, right? I don't know a lot about jazz clubs. I don't know if that's been evident throughout the rest of this discussion. <laughs> I, I mean, I've only been to the one, so I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Uh, Mia kind of continues the conversation, asks him who Keith at the lighthouse was, and Seb sort of just brushes it off. He's like, ah, it's just Keith. He's always weird, which is not, is just Seb's idea of Keith because Keith is a perfectly nice man from everything else we can see. Um, Seb's the, next the weird morning, one. <laughs> Seb is the weird one. He's the criminal. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the next morning, Mia's on the phone with her mom talking in the other room, and she's sort of talking up her her play and Seb to, to her parents, and She's sort of through the one side of this conversation, listening to it from Seb's perspective. We hear the uncertainty about his financial security and the kind of shiftiness of his apartment highlights the how much he doesn't really appeal to, I guess, Mia's family. 
and now self-conscious, Seb decides to go meet with Keith in his studio. And Keith is immediately like, hey, dude, thanks for coming by. You get $1,000 a week to tour with us, plus cuts of like merch profits and stuff. Do you want to jam? He's immediately on board for having Seb join the crew, even though Seb seems very unsure the whole time. As they start to jam, Keith starts to scat and we sort of get some electric inclusions jumping in, which really throws Seb for a loop for a second. But he continues to power through. And afterwards, as Keith and Sebastian are chatting, which I say chatting, but really Keith is talking at Seb and Seb is just giving him knowing looks back. Keith very rightfully points out that like traditionalists like Seb are why jazz is dying. And he's trying to make jazz like hit for the kids, even though he knows Seb doesn't like all the electric bits and kind of change ups that they're doing. He also calls Seb a bit of a pain in the ass to work with, which well, I, I, I love, mean, <laughs> I love the quote because not only is it true from what we've been shown so far, I love mm-hmm. the how he mentions like we had another guy. He wasn't as good as you. But you are a pain in the ass. <laughs> and I love that like whole thing there where he's like, like, yeah. yeah, you're probably the best guy we could get. But like, I'd rather have somebody else because they're not going to annoy me. <laughs> yeah, it's very, very uh, true to putting together any any sort of collaborative creative group thing. Right. Uh, <laughs> like, oh, they're good, but oh, man, are they a pain to work with. Th- um, those are the best people to work with, unfortunately. Unfortunately. <laughs> Shout out to my co-host, Tom. He may hear this. (laughs) Back at Seb's later on, uh, Mia shows up as he's sort of playing uh, the reprise of City of Stars and the piano, and they do a City of Stars duet this time with Mia sort of joining in um, the lesser of the two City of Stars performances in this movie. I think this is one of the instances where she doesn't sound as good as he does. I think there are just... Maybe it's the tone of the piano mixed with the tone of her voice don't match up in the same way. Like they don't, they're, they're kind of conflicting in a way mm-hmm. Ryan Gosling's voice is not. But then when they're singing together in harmony, it obviously sounds great because most of the time, like any harmony where two people sound decent sounds great when they're together. So I don't know. Yeah, I think it's any time that she has to really like stand on her own as a singer and there's not a lot else going out in the song. I feel like that's when you can really kind of pick up on the lower quality of her voice. I don't want to say it's bad because she does a pretty good job of covering a lot of the like less emotive vocal stuff with being a very talented screen actress. So you see a lot of really great like emotion on her face and her body language. She crushes but, it later yeah. though. She has, a, she has a good moment later on. Uh, but I think here when it's just her starting to jump into the duet, you can really yep. sort of hear it. In another montage, Mia quits her coffee shop job, Seb decides to join Keith's group and both begin preparing for their own big steps into their future. Uh, Mia begins prepping her one-woman show and Seb his tour with Keith. Oh, is that all for the montage? Oh, you know, there's some moments in there too where like Mia drives past the Rialto and sees that it's it's closed. Yep. There we go. <laughs> there this, we go. I think the movie does an exceptional job of using the Rialto as a way to show not only the turning point for the Rialto because it's now closed but like Mm -hmm. using it as a symbol for the turning point in their relationship because it's clear that she drives by and she's like made saddened by the fact that Rialto is closing but it's also like on repeated viewings you notice the Rialto closing is also the exact same time period where their relationship starts to change because he's now in this band she is working toward this one woman show and they're working toward different things and seeing each other a lot less often Yes, I am so glad that you pointed that out because my note for this scene literally says, Mia drives past the Rialto and sees it's closed, comma, ominous. <laughs> so I'm so glad 
you put it much more eloquently than that. As kind of the montage comes to a close, we see Mia alone now in Seb's place at night. As you mentioned, they they both are seeing each other less and less as they work on their own endeavors. She's surrounded by notes on her play uh, and goes to bed. And when he comes home later that night because of the new group, uh, we kind of see him observing what she's been working on that day. We kind of cut back to them playing City of Stars on the piano before fading into a concert where there's a great John Legend song play. It's a great song. Is, it's a great song. It's, I think, the one that sounds the least like the rest of the soundtrack, but I think that's also very intentional because mm. this is, um, of course, Keith, a.k.a. again, John Legend, uh, and his his combo, as he was referring to it earlier, performing. Um, and it's a bit more uh, modern. It's le- less like classical jazz than Seb prefers. Uh, and so it's, I think it's very intentional that it sounds different, but it's also a great song. So it all sort of levels out in the end. Yeah. Um, Mia's in the audience watching Seb, Keith, and the boys perform Light a Fire. Uh, and she seems really happy at first. Uh, it's as Start the a Fire, on stage. isn't it? Oh, yes. Start Come a Fire. On. <laughs> I'm sorry. I made a rookie mistake. I I'm here to fact should have had the set list pulled up. <laughs> you do own the, the vinyl, so I will defer to you for uh, titles. <laughs> I don't know if that one's on the vinyl now. I can say that, but I, I'm pretty sure it is. I, it's got to be right. I, I, so there are some songs that like are in the movie that aren't on the vinyl that like mm. aren't like song songs from the movie, but you feel like they would have been on there for like I don't know. Like even on like Spotify and Apple Music, there are different versions of this. There is yeah the the there's the three soundtrack different versions and the score. There's three different versions. There's a soundtrack. There's the score, and then there's La La Land: The Complete Experience, which mm. includes things like minor things that you would never think about, like like the horns in the beginning, like the car horns in the beginning before the movie starts, like they include that. And like, if there are things in the movie that help transition into the song, they include them on this. And I thought that was interesting. I always like when movies have different versions because I feel like there are different purposes to listening to different Mm -hmm. things. I'm a bit of a nerd for... (laughs) Oh no, Siri, hello. (laughs) I know, like what? (laughs) Uh, I'm a a bit of a nerd for for, uh, movie score. I hosted a radio show in college that was all about um, movie soundtracks and scores. So uh, I always love when you can hear where in a movie something is coming from just by listening to the score. But I, I think that there are different albums that work for different purposes there. Like, I don't think you can necessarily listen to just the score from La La Land and place it in the same way that you could if you included the transitions and mm-hmm. um, the song songs i guess for lack of a better word so it, it's interesting they put out so many different versions but i think for this movie in particular that really does sort of make sense uh mia's watching this performance she's happy at first but as the song kind of picks up and gets a little bit more uh electrified uh, and the lights get a little bit crazier and the audience goes wilder she gets pushed further and further away from seb as the song continues and uh seems more and more off put by the electric elements as she kind of struggles in the crowd again she's getting pulled further and further away from him as he progresses uh, in his career, in his life. Um, it's now fall, another title. Mia looks very uh, kind of sad as she's sort of just sitting in a coffee shop sending out emails about her one-woman show. Can we talk about how she didn't even like blind CC all those people? <laughs> she No, just CC. That's... She didn't even CC. She just... Those are all just straight sends. <laughs> that's a rookie mistake. Someone's going to hit reply all and then everyone in that chain is going to know they're not coming to your show. Like that's... Yeah. Girl, BCC is an important function in this day. Or send them all individually. Like find there, there's definitely like apps that let you do that where it's like there's you get a little them. Mailchimp action in there. Yeah, Come any on. Of those, like... <laughs> oh man, I guess she's not a PR agent at heart. She's just doing her best to to plug her show. 
as someone who's struggled with um, social media pushes in the past, I guess I can't really fault her that much for not being perfect on the email list. Fair. She calls Seb, who is currently on tour, and leaves a message saying, you know, I haven't heard from you a bit and that you, she misses him. But as she returns to his apartment, she hears the sounds of jazz playing. We all know and love that jazz. Uh, and walks in to find the table laid out for dinner. It's Seb. He came home for the night. He's here to surprise her, even though he has to leave first thing in the morning. It's a very sweet gesture. Over dinner, Seb and Mia are chatting about how she's nervous to perform, and he continues gassing her up as he is wont to do. And he asks her to come to Boise with him in the morning, the next location they're performing in. She seems uh, off-put by this. She's like, no, I, I have to rehearse. All my stuff is here. Uh, and he sort of asks, like, well, can't you rehearse anywhere? And the fact that he's pretty much always going to be touring or recording and always sort of away or out really starts to weigh on both of them in this conversation. You kind of see it sort of dawning on Mia that this band is a long term thing. Uh, and, and she asks Seb directly, like, do you like the music you're playing? Which he clearly doesn't. Clearly doesn't. We've, As we know, Seb is a man of the classics. And this is very much not that. <laughs> And they sort of start to begin to argue. Seb's basically like main point is that he he's doing this for you. I wanted you to see that I could have a steady job. Uh, and Mia's like, I did want you to have a steady job, but I also want to see you chase your dream. I wanted you to get that money so that you could save up to start your club. And the argument continues to escalate from there. Eventually with Seb saying something he can't take back, saying that you liked me when I was on my ass because it made you feel better about yourself. And uh, as they kind of reach that point, the music fully stops in the background of the scene. And we're kind of left to sit with the quiet like words they couldn't take back at the end of this dinner. Only broken by the smoke alarm going off as whatever was in the oven is now fully smoking it on fire. And as Seb goes to check on it, Mia leaves the apartment. What What is in that oven? What I, so, was in that oven? Happy you brought it up. I have never been able to figure <laughs> out what in God's name he was trying to cook. Because for the record, it doesn't look like it's burnt. It looks like it's, it doesn't look like it's burnt. It almost looks like, like a souffle or like a pot pie, but it's massive. It's like a <laughs> it's full huge. crock pie. It is what? big enough to feed multiple people. And there are two of them. And they're already eating dinner, so it must be like a dessert or something. I don't know what that was. It, I had the movie paused for a while, like on a screenshot of it, and I could not figure it out. Yeah, I, I have never thought to like look up what that is, but I've always wondered. The other thing I find interesting about this scene is I have recently been thinking about this movie with more context. And the mm -hmm. context I've been thinking about is they've only been dating for like six months at this point, at mm -hmm. like most. And, like, this is a pretty big thing to say, like, six months into a relationship. Like, that, like, that, it's pretty obvious. Like, you say something like that, it's over. Like, you're probably not making it to the one year. Like, they don't even yeah. date for a year. And they are, like, madly in love. And that's, like, crazy to me. Like, six months in, they just knew. And, like, that's, that's, like, I'm sure people have been there. Like, I've definitely been there. And it's, like, it's, it's crazy, like, how quickly they fell in love. Yeah, and I think the the use of seasons rather than months kind of helps hide that on your first viewing of the movie. Because like you said, you've been looking at it with context now. But if you haven't seen this movie in a while or you're just watching it for the first time, you can really lose sense of just how little time they've been together. Because they have such like an instant chemistry. It's mm -hmm. very easy to think like, oh, but they, they've been together for so long. Clearly, they have such an easy rhythm. It's been uh, years. It's been years, but but you're right. Like saying something like that so early into a relationship, like I'm sorry, that was a dead end for you, buddy. Like, Nail in the coffin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, later on at at the theater, we see Mia's play is on tonight. So long, Boulder City. Uh, as Seb at the studio is sort of like packing up his keyboard to leave, 
Keith asks him if he's good for a photo shoot at, shoot at seven tonight. Uh, and Seb is like, oh, oh, no, I thought it was next Thursday. He must decide, will he go see Mia's play on time or will he go to this photo shoot? Why didn't he just because John Legend asks him, he's like, he's like, is that good? Like, are you good for it? And John Legend's character has never seemed to us like the kind of guy who's going to be like, like an a-hole about it. If he's like, nah, like tonight's actually not good. Yeah. Like, why doesn't he just say like, like, nah, tonight's not good. Like, I've never understood that as many times as I've seen it. Yeah, it doesn't like it doesn't feel like as much of a conflict point as it should. Like it is it's conflicting for Seb because he has to make this choice, like his relationship with Mia or his burgeoning career in this combo. But on sort of like a meta level, like he's not like the leader of this combo. It's Keith's group. So the pianist missing is probably not a huge deal at the photo shoot. And he clearly has choice because Keith is asking him if it's OK. So when you read out a text of the movie, it, it, it does sort of seem like less con- conflict than it should. But they play it very dramatically. Uh, for the next like couple minutes or so of like wh- what choice will he make will he go to see mia's show and uh mia is left to wonder that as well as she walks out onto stage to begin her performance and we the audience find out the answer to that question as we cut to the photo shoot where of course seb is on the keys in a very funny hat being directed by a very energetic and like <laughs> somehow weirdly 80s photographer i don't know how to describe this man exactly but he puts out the energy of the 1980s <laughs> yeah i i've never I've never really thought much about him. Every time I see him, he just seems very off-putting. Mm. And there are ways to describe him that I am not going to use here. But <laughs> like creepy is, I guess, the best way to put it. Like, yeah. like if you were a girl at a bar and this guy came up to you, you'd be thrown off like a lot. Yeah, he's a very like, oh, I'm going to give him the polite laugh away, turn back to your friend sort of send off there, like the cold shoulder. Uh, but he's got camera in hand and he's photogra- photographing the band. He sort of directs Seb for a minute. He's like, bite your lip. Like, look hot. Look, lo- lower your glasses. Look over them. Okay, okay. Now now play us something. Um, you're a pianist, aren't you? Play us something. And Seb, uh, not reading the room at all, starts playing some soft jazz uh, before stopping for a second to look off wistfully. He is, of course, playing um, me and Sebastian's theme. Themes all coming together now. <laughs> Uh, And as he sort of looks off wistfully, Mia uh, shuts off the light on stage, ending her play uh, and bows to a small but not empty audience who clap for her backstage overhears two men talking about how she wasn't very good and they didn't really get the play and how one woman plays are always bad which is patently false because in victorious there's that episode where uh, (laughs) victorious's sister does a one woman play chicago and that play is excellent so guys in la la land who said one woman plays are always terrible you are wrong well they're clearly misogynistic if if that wasn't obvious to begin with but yeah obviously Mm -hmm. they're wrong obviously i've always wondered though this is just like selfishly i would love mm-hmm. for them to like spin off the play and like actually do like a performance yes. of the play i'd love to see like a separate performance of this play on broadway or something that'd be cool yeah i think it would be so i get emma stone back in because she's such a good actress i think she'd be really good in it too we get to show off this those chops that would be a lot even if it's just like a one-off event or something i think it'd be really fun to see that I'd be there. again we don't really see anything of what this play is actually about in the movie itself we don't need to to move forward in the story so i think that not bogging us down with that is mm-hmm. a pretty good choice but uh it would be cool from like a film geek perspective to get to see that extra story yeah uh seb rushes to the theater all now all locked up looking for mia who 
walks out and he starts apologizing profusely. Uh, and she just sort of starts to, you know, break down and she's like, you know what? It's over. I'm going to go home for a while. And says like, oh, back to the apartment. And she says, no, I'm, I'm leaving L.A. I'm going back home, home. Uh, and she leaves both Seb and L.A. in the dust, driving off in her Prius, as many in L.A. are want to do, apparently. <laughs> uh, another day of sun sort of plays lightly on the piano in the background as Mia drives home to her parents' place, sitting in her childhood bedroom filled with all of this theater memorabilia, uh, where we know she was first inspired to kind of chase the dream that she was chasing. Later on at a wedding that I guess is his sister's wedding? I think. That sounds right. The girl who is getting married does look a lot like his sister. I immediately didn't clock it, but <laughs> I'm glad you caught it. Sebastian is playing some slow jazz for uh, his sister and her husband. Later on, a cell phone ring kind of brings us to Seb waking up in his old dingy apartment, now much emptier. Uh, but it's an agent trying to reach Mia. Uh, and at first, Seb is like, she doesn't, she's not here anymore. You have the wrong number. But when the agent says, oh, I'm this agent, I'm looking for Mia, he perks up, starts paying attention. Uh, real quick, I love, there are two quotes I love there is the, they, while he's on the phone, you can hear the casting director go, mm-hmm. go, well, if you're going to talk to her, and he goes, I won't, <laughs> which I think <laughs> is so funny. And then yep. the other quote where he says, um, it, it's when she says, I'm Amy Brandt from blank casting agency and he perks up and goes casting (laughs) and i just i just love those two quotes you just know if you were like the casting director on the other side you would have been like oh god please don't tell me you're about to give me like your type five or something like you just perked up at the word casting (laughs) yeah uh but later on back at mia's parents a familiar car horn blaring brings mia to the front door uh, she's like, why are you here? But he he cuts her off and he's like, look, there's a casting director that was at your play and loved it. And she wants you to audition for this huge movie. And Mia at first is like, I don't want to. Uh, so Seb just straight up yells at her. And she goes on to explain that she's been to a million auditions and maybe she's just not good enough. And she's just gonna be one of those people for whom it's always a pipe dream because she just doesn't want to do this anymore. Uh, and when Seb asks her why, she explains it just it hurts a little too much. He won't take no for an answer, though. He calls her a baby and says that he'll come pick her up at eight the next morning if she's there or not, whatever. But he's going back to L.A. <laughs> the next morning, Seb. Hold on, up, hold on, uh, hold on, hold on, oh? hold on, hold on. We cannot pass over what is the <laughs> cutest moment in this whole movie, which is Please. they're standing there outside and she goes, how did you find my house? And way earlier in the movie, she had told a story when they were on the Warner Brothers lot about how she lived across the street from the local library. And that's where she rented all those movies with her grandmother to watch. And when she says, how did you find the house? He just points up and goes, the one across the street from the library and then drives away. Just another great character moment for him of just like him Mm -hmm. showing he actually does care, even if he's like kind of hardened on the outside. I do like in this scene, too, that when he's blaring the car horn, he's not directly in front of her house. So it could be that he knew the general location, but he's like, well, the horn will summon her from whichever one of these houses on the street is correct, right? Yep. It's a good touch. (laughs) It's a a nice moment. So the next morning, he rolls up in his wonderful burgundy convertible at 8 a.m. Or according to his watch, he's like 8.03-ish. He's a little late. And just as he's about to drive off and leave, Mia runs up and stops the car and uh, pulls up. She's like, I got coffee ready to head back to LA to get to this audition in time. Uh, in the audition room, Mia's called in with Seb waiting outside. And this time the casting directors are much friendlier and much more attentive. Uh, and they start explaining the movie that they're building, which 
I was amazed they got greenlit. It's <laughs> doesn't have any script, but it takes place in Paris and they're going to really build the character around the actress. Uh, but they don't describe the character at all because, again, the actress is going to determine that. So I don't know. I'm not big into pre-production. I'm not really involved in development as much. I'm more of a post person. But my understanding is that you usually do need to have some sort of script to get greenlit. This is correct. And unless unless like you unless you're just banking on a director. Yeah, my experience has always been you have some sort of script or you have you know, a team that's already on for some sort of mm -hmm. story and the script, the script is not yet written. It seems like they don't even have a story. Like they have <laughs> nothing. So they don't seem to have a story and they're casting in a completely unknown actresses. Yeah. So it's, I mean, it's definitely a gamble, but, uh, I guess they're really good producers if they can get, <laughs> get the funding for this poll. I mean, like I kid you not, the people I know who like do work in pre-production, like, it's stuff it's like stuff that's like like jj abrams can't just like be like hey here's my next story i'm gonna write the script mm -hmm. eventually it's like no no no. they go through like a tedious like write rewrite rewrite the rewrite like process and then it's <laughs> finally like okay you can make that one and then if like the studio doesn't like it you go to another studio it's like it's not that mm -hmm. simple no but these these casting directors they're they're very sure of themselves and since they don't have a script they ask mia to tell them a story uh, for her audition, we get a very powerful performance here. I think this is one of the parts where even though she's not as strong of a singer uh, and it's, it is her on her own, um, Emma Stone does an incredible job here in a very emotional scene um, where she starts telling the story of her aunt having lived in Paris and jumping into the scene and kind of transitions into a song about dreamers and those who leap without looking and artists being a very important uh, part of our of our world the fools um, who dream yes it's, it's very moving she does a i think probably the best job in the movie here of emoting with her voice but we also get a lot of shots that are just of her and her face and you get a really great sense of the emotion behind this and her emotion behind this here for the audience also translates to her really nailing this audition um we get the sense that this is going well as her sort of like song ends and we fade back to the reality of, of her in, in the room, uh, we, we kind of cut to her and Seb afterwards on a bench outside where they're talking um, much more civilly this time than they were outside of his convertible the other day. Uh, she says she'll hear back in the next few days about the audition and then proceeds to ask, you know, where they are, which he immediately responds Griffith Park. But she's like, no, relationship wise, <laughs> you know what I mean? I love that he responds with Griffith Park. What do you mean? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's such a he knew exactly what she meant. That was such a sarcastic move to make. I love it. <laughs> He'll never stop being the contrarian. Their roles, though, are about to reverse with Mia being the one who will be off in Perry and Seb will be staying in L.A. to chase his own dream. Uh, and they both sort of say, like, you know, we'll always love each other. But you get the sense that their paths are uh, diverging. And we we cross fade away into winter with another title telling us five years later. This time on the Warner lot, it is Mia who gets out of the car dressed like the actress in the beginning. And she is the one who returns to the coffee shop she used to work at and is offered her drinks for free before insisting on paying. Uh, she It's exactly the, the tracking shot from the opening of the movie as well. It's a really nice little parallel there. One note, she walks into the coffee shop, says, you know, two iced coffees and immediate, immediately, immediately is handed two iced coffees. And I don't see her like pay for it, even though she insists she's paying for it. I don't she know pays. if she like, tapped her card. Did she pay? She like okay, throws good. some money on the counter. 
I guess when you're a wealthy actress, the concept of change doesn't really matter so much. When did they make those coffees? <laughs> so I've thought about this as well because I have the same reaction. Although it happens with the other actress too when Mia's working at the coffee shop. Mm-hmm. And my thought there is this person must just come in about the same time every day. <laughs> and this must have just been a new person working the counter who was just like starstruck or whatever. And mm-hmm. so it was like, or like her manager gave a heads up, like, yo, she's <laughs> going to be there for coffee, just a heads up. So she doesn't have to wait. I don't know. That's my only guesses. I guess if you're famous enough and you go in consistently enough, they might get your order prepared ahead of time. But what if she had thrown in a curveball? You know, what if she had deviated from her usual order? That could have thrown the whole game off. She but... gets oat milk instead of almond milk. <laughs> and they're like, oh, you need to give us a few minutes. <laughs> Meanwhile, Seb is prepping, uh, testing out a piano that's recently tuned in a closed club where he's sort of talking about uh, getting ready to go. Mia returns to a very expensive, fancy home where she arrives to her loving husband and daughter. Uh, Meanwhile, Seb is sort of going to his equally fancy but in a different direction apartment uh, with a very cute Christmas card from his sister and her new family on the counter. It's very cute. Life is going on. He also has an awesome blue refrigerator. I just want to throw that out there. I love his kitchen. His kitchen is so nice. Yeah, it's sick. Uh, this this real estate, we'll learn, is much more realistic for both of them as they have both progressed to becoming somewhat successful in their careers. Yeah. But in many ways, equally as nice as Mia's apartment in the beginning of the movie. I forgot about that. <laughs> that night, Seb goes to his club, walking right past a poster of Mia in another movie, we presume. So we understand that her career has really taken off. Uh, as Mia and her husband head out for the evening. While they're stuck in traffic, they decide to just sort of pull off the freeway uh, and grab dinner as opposed to going wherever they're going. And as they're walking along the street, the sound of jazz lures Mia towards a dim club. Well, no, it lures her husband to the dim club. (laughs) And then she's Ah. like, yeah, sure, why not? I'll go in. Not, uh, we'll get there, but yeah. We'll get there, yeah. Inside, a big neon sign says Seb's in a logo she recognizes from before, one that she had drawn years earlier. Uh, And Mia immediately sort of realizes where she is. It's Seb's club, opened just as he always planned with a a few tweaks from her influence. There's the old jazz memorabilia all over the walls. Uh, As she and her husband sit down, Seb takes the stage to kind of announce the band that's been playing. And when he notices Mia in the crowd, Uh, He goes a bit more muted and quiet as well before heading over to the piano to begin to play the track we all know and love by now, Mia and Sebastian's theme. The lights go dim and for a moment it's just the two of them in the club, everything else fades away. Uh, And we then return to the Christmas themed smokehouse restaurant where Mia and Sebastian first met, quote unquote. But this time, instead of brushing past her, uh, they immediately begin a very passionate kiss and the music picks back up for a medley, another American in Paris homage. This one, I would think, very directed like the dream ballet dance sequence that that movie ends in. And we kind of play through this alternate future where Seb said no to Keith and Mia's play was a hit and the two of them end up together in Paris and live their lives together as opposed to the paths divulging as they did. I love this dance number. I love this big ensemble cast walking through all these painted sets it's very dream sequence it's a very like classic musical trope i just everything about it is gorgeous the the one part of it i didn't again this is things i just was not noticing until i was watching it the other day 
I think they they cut to this one where it's like they do another like dreamy. Oops, I just punched my mic. They do <laughs> they do another dreamy, starry sequence of them mm-hmm. dancing together. I'm like ninety percent sure that's supposed to be their wedding. I don't know why, mm-hmm. but like in watching it, he's wearing a black suit. She's wearing a white dress, not a typically wedding white dress. But if we've seen anything from this movie, like they're not trying to make it obvious when things are happening. I think that's supposed to be their wedding, that dreamy sequence. Interesting. I always thought it was a repeat of sort of like a callback to the Griffith Observatory dance from earlier when they're dancing in much more obvious stars. Because the way the lights are in the background, it sort of looks like a starscape. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I could see that being their wedding, too. Because then right after, it's like they sit down and they watch the video montage of like Mm -hmm. them with like as a family. Yeah, they go through a, a kind of like home video style montage of uh, Mia and Sebastian's life together and with their family. They have a kid, a uh, son instead of a daughter as she has now. And they're all happy and in love all the way up to the evening where Mia sat down in the jazz club. Uh, once again, they decide to turn off the road and go into the jazz club, but this time together and sort of re-return to the present as uh, Mia sits watching Seb finish his performance uh, and Mia's actual husband sort of ends the dream sequence by leaning over to ask if she'd like to stay for another song. And she says, no, we, sh- we should go. And as she's leaving, she turns back to see Seb uh, looking back at her and they share a-, a small smile before parting ways once again. The lighting on this too, like the blue Ooh. lighting that is on both yes. of them is <laughs> so good. This whole sequence is maybe like my favorite part of the movie as a whole. I just, I love a good, I love a good dream dance ballet. I'm a sucker for an American in Paris. So the direct callback to it is just chef's kiss. So I, I love the sequence. I would say though, I have a couple of thoughts on the, the mm-hmm. final like sequence there. One, it's cheating. There's no other way to put it. <laughs> they get to have their cake and eat it too because mm-hmm. you get the ex- excruciatingly sad ending of they're not together, they still are clearly in love, but life took them in different directions. But they also mm-hmm. show you the what if they had stayed together angle and that that's just cheating. But the other thing I find interesting from the movie in terms of messaging mm-hmm. is if you notice... In the in reality, they don't stay together. They both accomplish their dreams. They might not be 100% fulfilled because they weren't together, but they accomplish their dreams. Mm-hmm. In the dream version, only Mia accomplishes her dream. Seb never opens a club. He doesn't get to accomplish that dream. And so mm-hmm. I don't I don't know what the message is supposed to be there when it comes to love and accomplishing your dreams because what I have always interpreted from that part is that like sometimes you have to give up something to get something. And Mm -hmm. for both of them, they gave up each other to get their dreams when in the, in the, the dream, other dream sequence, he gives up his dream because she is essentially his new dream, quote unquote, if that makes Mm -hmm. sense. And I've always found that a very interesting way to portray that because it would be one thing if, in both scenarios, they accomplish everything they wanted and they just screwed up and didn't make that choice to be together still. But mm-hmm. they make it very purposeful that he doesn't accomplish his dream of opening his club if they stay together. Yeah, I think that's an important wrinkle to have in there because if in both scenarios, like you said, they had both succeeded, I think it would have made the audience question, well, like, well, why didn't they just end up together? Why do we have to see them this sad ending where they're not together? 
Uh, and so I think the idea of them having both chosen their dreams over each other kind of ties into why they didn't work out in the end anyway, because they are both such dreamers tied to this, this drive to succeed in their particular directions. Um, so I think it's very important to me that we don't see him succeed in the dream sequence in favor of them staying together, because otherwise I think it would have taken me out a little bit of the ending that they did go with. Um, but it is very tragic in a way to get to see this final, what could have been send off and then see the actual send off of the movie, which is of course Mia and Sebastian parting ways with a very big sense of finality. Uh, and then Seb turning to back to his piano to count us in to picking up the music for the end credits because we have reached the end of the movie. <laughs> Dear view- listening audience who have stuck with us for basically the runtime of the movie at this point. I mean, I'm just just passionate about it, you know? It's hey, it's it's sort of like a movie struck staple at this point for us to run out the time of the movie. So we're doing pretty good. <laughs> we haven't actually hit the 210 mark um, or 208 or whatever it is. Uh, but yes, yeah, so that's that's the end of La La Land. Do you have any sort of any sort of closing thoughts for us here? Situations you might recommend people watch this movie. And I know you've got a lot of love for it, so I won't ask no. you if you liked it or not. <laughs> well, I obviously love this movie. I would say. I'll be like full disclosure. The original, the first time I saw this movie was with an ex Mm. and it was somebody who like we were together for quite some time. And so looking back on this movie is like, it's kind of weird for me because I actually see a lot of myself in Mia and Sebastian in this movie. So I I thought potentially like if that relationship had ever ended, I would not like this movie anymore. And mm-hmm. I like I like it even more now. So that that's like an interesting wrinkle. Like I just mm. this movie just continues to grow on me. I find it super charming. I think the acting is excellent. The storytelling through set design and lighting and editing. Like to me, this is like filmmaking at its finest. And I don't know if any movie is ever going to top it for me. Like I kid you not, it's my favorite movie ever. My other movies in my top five are like Inglorious Bastards, <laughs> The Iron Giant. Uh, I'm trying to think of the The Dark Knight is in the top five, and I think Whiplash is my number five. Like it, it's one of those movies that I don't ever, I don't foresee something knocking it off. But I also have like, I, I'm admittedly terrible, and I, I think you know this. Like, <laughs> if it came out before 2014, strong chance I haven't seen it. So it's one of those things where I want to see more movies in this vein to see if there's mm-hmm. anything that can appeal to me in this way because this appeals to me from a technical level an emotional level it's just this movie's excellent uh i'm it's fun to hear you say that you saw this with an ex because i also saw this movie for a first time with now an ex (laughs) so i guess that's the real answer to when should someone watch this movie it's uh if you think you're going to see it with an ex it's probably as good a time as any but uh no i think what you said to your point of wanting to see more movies like this in this vein is is a good one i i agree i i love this movie it's it's gorgeous it's technically beautiful it's uh, thematically very moving um and i think it's my favorite of the modern movie musicals i'm a huge nerd for musicals period uh i did theater in high school and i never fully recovered from that as a person uh, <laughs> but i didn't I think but i love me a good musical love a good musical and i think that this does the best job of picking up the legacy of some of those classic musicals, like you're, you're My Fair Ladies, you're, again, American in Paris. I can't say that word enough. It's the same thing as when you watch any desert movie and have to reference Lawrence of Arabia. Uh, <laughs> it does the best job of picking up the the 
magic and the charm of those movies and translating it to a more modern audience and to a more modern sort of presentation and more modern technology that we have available to us in screen making now. This movie is, again, technically very brilliant. Uh, And so I would also love to see more movies like this. But if you are a fan of any sort of musical, I think this is a movie that will very much appeal to you. Um, And I I would highly suggest a lot of our listeners go out and check it out. Even if you're not a musical fan and you just like very um, cute, heartfelt moments with lots of great color choices and uh, really nice dresses and one really fantastic convertible, this might be the movie for you. Well, this movie, I I think just to go off that a little bit, like Mm -hmm. it's extremely and I think this is why it kind of works well, like for people in relationships, because I think not only is it really cute and it has all those like very lovey relationship, sappy moments, Mm -hmm. the movie also like if you just like movies, it's just a good movie. So now like it's one of those things where it's like, say, say like you're one of those guys who like you don't you love movies, but like, you're not really trying to watch like a chick flick. Like this kind of has some chick flick qualities to it, Mm -hmm. but is like several steps above that. Like it is, it's got this like backbone of reality to it. That kind of takes it away from being all cutesy moments and makes it have more of a compelling story than I think your, your typical rom-com would. hundred percent. Yeah. Now I'm thinking about it. (laughs) Crazy stupid love. That's also Emma Stone and Ryan Gosling. Gosling. They're Incredible. a great romantic movie lead duo. <laughs> they really are. Like, th- you're convinced. I- I've been convinced multiple times seeing them in multiple movies that, like, mm-hmm. they, the the most convinced I've ever been in a movie that they could have been a real relationship is La La Land and Call Me By Your Name. Mm-hmm. Something about Army Hammer and, I mean, Army <laughs> Hammer's got the whole drama going on with him now, so oh, I don't know boy. how much it is to address that, but Army <laughs> Hammer and Timothy Chalamet, like, are also incredibly believable in Call Me By Her. Those are the two that come to mind when I think of believable movie romances. Yeah, they definitely, they stand out for me as well. And I think it's, oh, man, they just have so much on-screen chemistry from the first moment you see them that it really does a lot to sell you on characters that could otherwise be somewhat unlikable because like you know ryan gosling character stuff is a little bit of an asshole at first it would be very easy to fall into the trap of like well he he wasn't nice to mia and so i don't like him as a character but they recover from that so quickly in this movie because they first of all they have so much on-screen chemistry but they do a lot of the legwork to really establish them as full-fledged characters each in their own right so that their own love story becomes much more believable um Mm -hmm. it's just it's a great movie everyone should go we should Listeners, this is this is a hard recommend from the movie struck crew. This is a hard recommend. Hard recommend. Go out there and watch it. Uh, but David, thank you so much for joining us today. If people want to hear more from you, where could they find you? Oh, so you can find me on my podcast. There's a lot going on. Uh, if you like sports, that it's the place to be. Even if you don't like sports, we uh, tend to get a little wacky with the things we talk about. So we try and <laughs> try and have a little bit more fun with the sports conversation. I think a lot of the times. A lot of sports podcasts, radio shows, television shows. Granted, I would like to disclose I do work in sports, but <laughs> they will spot podcasts in specific will sometimes take themselves too seriously. Mm-hmm. We do not take ourselves very seriously. So if you just you know want to kick back, learn a little bit about sports, and uh, have a good time, that's the place to do it. Also, if you want to keep up with me, I'm always I'm always getting into other random podcast stuff. I'm I'm a fountain of ideas, so you can follow me on Twitter. <laughs> at underscore Arroyo David. That's A-R-R-O-Y-O David. So yeah, that's that's where uh, that's where I'll be. And hopefully you'll be there too. Thanks. We'll link all of that down in the show notes below. So listeners, go check it out. 
go get yourself some some sports updates and also some David updates, both equally important in terms of what we're looking for here. Uh, but again, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I'm off to go try and buy a new convertible, hopefully one in the burgundy range and preferably one that comes preloaded with some jazz. But we'll catch you guys all on the next episode. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of Movie Struck. We'll be back on December 6th to talk about iconic cinema flicks Sharkboy and Lava Girl, but if you have any questions, comments, or concerns before then, feel free to email us at moviestruckpod at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the show, please rate us and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. And if you want more from our guest David, be sure to check out the links to his podcast and socials in the show notes below.